Today I drove down to Houston, Texas to meet up with Greg Hurwitz. In this episode, we hit virtually every third real topic the two people reasonably can and still ended up having a very civil conversation. Greg and I discuss using AI in writing, the upcoming election, the Biden-Her report, and we still managed to discuss his upcoming Orphan X novel, Lone Wolf. It is precisely these kinds of sprawling but deep conversations I deeply enjoy, and I'm glad we were able to dig in meaningfully. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Greg Hurwitz. How are things? It's been a while. It's been a whole year since I saw you last. I think. It has. Things are good, man. Yeah, yeah. Got a new book out and uh, doing the world traveling thing. Just kicking off the tour right now. Yeah. Is this the first? This is my first stop. You're really? officially my first press event. Holy cow! Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, how many? How many places are you going? Oh, a bunch. I'm doing a, a different city a day for about two weeks. It's funny with novels because I go from like writing in this cave to being <laughs> having this like explosively extroverted all of a sudden you're out in the world blinking into the blinding light of day yeah. so it's a very uh multiple personality disorder occupation are you more of an introvert or extrovert no i'm extroverted it was really hard for me to figure out though now i have the balance down but when i was first writing as a novelist i was like what am i going to do being alone for six, eight, ten hours a day. It was it was the hardest part for me earlier. Hmm. And then I've acclimated to it. It didn't take me that long, but it was really weird to to you know, it's all that I ever wanted to do was write novels. But when I first sat down to do it, it was a very weird notion for me almost. Do you I mean is it I know you do you know at least some research for the book, right? So can Lots you of research, can you yeah. Yeah, can you kind of break it up into chunks and like, I'll do some research and then go yeah, back to the and cave. Look, now, and... <laughs> I, now I travel a lot, you know, I have different events. Okay, right. I mean, my, I got a, my hands in a lot of buckets. Okay. Um, good. So yeah. You're not fully in the cave then. <laughs> I'm not fully in the cave, but you know, it's intense, you know, writing, writing a novel. It's very different, obviously than TV or comics or features. It's, you know, you're all things as the novelist. You're the cinematographer, you're the director, you're hair and makeup, you're the location scout. It's very um, sort of entrancing to be in a in a novel, especially a first draft. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, my life's broken up enough. I have a lot of other extracurriculars too. Yeah, I was looking at the Microsoft, or sorry, the Microsoft Apple um, um, new VR tool they have. I forget what it's called Visual Visual mm -hmm. Pro or whatever it is. Um, I think that might actually really help novelists because you can kind of be like, let's say it's rainy or something. You can make it like rainy. You live in Southern California. It never rains. Basically you can make it suddenly start raining in your house and you're kind of like, Oh, I kind of want like a little spooky mood music. And, you know, just kind of have it like very similar to how you, picture the scene being while you're writing the scene you know you know it's funny is sometimes if i'm writing a book that takes place in winter but it's the summer i'm like i'll, I'll forget where i am because i'm spending more waking hours inside the plot than i am in the external reality mm -hmm. so it is funny sometimes to cross up dates and times and mm -hmm. months and weather patterns yeah i bet yeah it's the best kind of make-believe you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i mean you know can't undervalue our imagination all these new tools come in right ai and vr and all this it's important mm -hmm. to not lose the strength of the muscle you know we want to keep like to use a fantasia 
metaphor. We want to be Sorcerer Mickey. We don't want to be the eyeless mops hauling buckets of water, Mm -hmm. right? We want to keep the tools in their place, Mm -hmm. um, but still make use of them. And Mm -hmm. so it's a balance between having a sort of Luddite attitude towards them and then becoming dependent in a way that lets creative muscle and intellectual fortitude atrophy. Well, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask you about this anyway, so might as well jump into that. Where do you see the role of AI and writing? Like, is it kind of useful is it super useful or you're just not not because the reason i think you're in particular well suited to answer this question a lot of writers are not very good uh they're just not very good uh and they could take anything out of chat and say make it sound like this famous author and it would be good enough but your running style is very unique i have not actually run across it before like one of the one of the things is pretty early in the book i'm not spoiling anything but you'll use like terms like an isosceles of vodka like ChatGPT is not going to come up with that metaphor there's just no way it's never going to mm. do it um so where do you see it kind of living in your toolbox it's a really good question i think we need one of the things that we're losing in this sort of collapse into our atomized current state of information and of news is is a, a subsidiary structure of values, having things in their proper place, right? One of the things that we've seen happen is that politics, or I should say virtue signaling around politics has <laughs> rushed to the top of the pyramid, right? So, you know, are we watching a sport? Are we watching a commercial? Are we drinking a beer? Are we reading a book? Or are we sort of competing to indicate what our team sport is? And it's really rough when that happens, when we lose the values and ethic of individual professions that, you know, a lawyer has their own code. I think in some ways that the, the, this has come out of not to get too tangential, but we like getting tangential. Yeah. But I think that like the 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 death of a proper liberal arts education in, in higher education and the overtaking of that with ideology. Well, that, that was that was that was very loaded. What do you mean be proper before we go further? Liberal arts education? Yeah, but proper, that word. Ah, ah, I see. (laughs) Meaning that a liberal arts education, you're supposed to be trained in a whole number of different disciplines and acquainted with the ethic of different disciplines. So if you're in a lab, you are thinking and processing like a scientist. If you are studying history, you should have the skills and toolkit to assess things as a historian. If you're looking at a literary text, right, you're, you're observing things from both assessing its artistic and creative worth and also in certain versions of of being a critic when we determine that our own individual state and definition is the top hierarchy in every single field we lose those ethics so if i say well i have anxiety and that's the preeminent thing that's going to determine how i go into a chemistry lab right or into a sociology course if my own identity if i decide that because i'm you know, Jewish, that my Jewish identity is the only filter by which I will interpret history, I'm losing the, the the sort of strength and fortitude of learning different disciplines, which allow us, all these different disciplines are lanes around which to ideally, you know, critically approach a topic because we can detach and look at things through these different structures. But if we're no longer lawyers or doctors or teachers or social workers or cops, we're all you know, beholden to a higher ideology and the particular idiosyncratic filters that we have and our take on the world, we're completely atomized. It's the Tower of Babel, right? Mm -hmm. Then we just sort of compete and look for shelter among people who think like us. 
And so with the loss of that and the erosion of that, it's it's very problematic. And so the subsidiarity of values, like for me as a, like I'll choose sides around a political issue around political parties, but I never choose sides in fiction. Mm-hmm. If I choose sides in my writing of a thriller, then I'm not writing a thriller, I'm writing propaganda. Mm-hmm. And so we're losing these you know, in the the notion that everything is political means that we're losing different value sets, and so isn't isn't there any tug to right ideology? I mean, don't you feel like I'm not accusing you of being unethical, but isn't isn't there a strong like shit? Well, I believe this, and I kind of want the audience to like know this is my opinion on this topic. Or when you think about what writing does, genuine writing. You know, when I was younger and dumber, my first, look, I wrote my first book. I started when I was 19. I was an undergraduate and I have a line in it. My first thriller where the FBI agent, I say he was the best of the best. You know, early days, I was like the purest and toughest that my hero is and the more evil and mustache twirling that the villain is, Mm -hmm. right? The more everyone's going to engage. Well, that's not how we engage. How we engage is to see somebody who's flawed and imperfect the way that we are approaching through 150 shades of gray, approaching a moral dilemma with a lot of suspense and thrills and action. And in in the case of Orphan X, sometimes technology um, to imperfectly try to reconstitute some sort of order from chaos. And the more that my main character, Orphan X, Evan Smoke, missteps. Like one of the things I say is he never learned to speak the strange language of intimacy. He was trained to be an assassin from the age of 12 when he missteps in some situation and goes away and then feels terribly about it or can't figure his way through it, that's what we empathize with. We empathize with people who who misstep, where their flaws are these cracks that let through the light for us to feel uh, empathy or attachment. It's not making these paragons of good and evil. So I don't have that, Paul. Um, I think, you know, when I'm when I'm writing inadequately, that's where the poll might come in when I'm assuming, oh, well, this is the right position for someone to take. But there's nothing more surprising than to find a spark of humanity in, you know, somebody who is um, what you want from a first of all, I don't want to write heroes and villains. I want to write antagonists and protagonists. Mm-hmm. And what you want in your antagonist is for them to be whispering darkly to the reader and to me where you can believe that argument right it can mm-hmm. we can relate and empathize with that argument we want to feel connection with it and then and then i mean look this is this is the way that i write at least to approach it and i i like there to be confusion where you're almost not sure which way things should go yeah one of the nice things about that is you actually get to see another opinion safely you know it's not like you're personally putting yourself in peril by talking to some you know career criminal or whatever, which I'm okay with doing, but a lot of people are not. They're like, I do not want to be anywhere near that person. But you can still get to interact with them in some small way through this kind of writing. That's the whole, I mean, the whole point of storytelling is that we get to enact a series of future uh, narrative arcs without getting killed. Like, you don't have to get killed by the assassin. You don't have to have the affair with Glenn Close where she cooks a rabbit on your stove, mm-hmm. right? The point of narrative is for us to explore aspects of the unknown, but do it with our prefrontal cortex instead of going out and having to encounter all of them. And so they are about narrative stories that connect with us that feel real. They're from a very old part of our brain, and they essentially are teaching us about engagements with the unknown, right? How do you contend with the unknown? 
unknown has equal parts opportunity and threat. How do you balance that? How do you bear up under pressure? You know, my favorite quotation from psychology is from William James, the great Harvard psychologist. Um, and he has a quotation where he says, act like the person you want to be. And when I've been in horrible personal situations or dilemmas that feel intractable, I've thought before, I'm not good enough to contend with this issue that's before me clearly. It's so either dizzying or stressful or traumatic. If I was writing a character that I would admire, what would that character do? Mm. And that's been a guide for me at different times in my life. Um, what do you want to be? The, the Harvard psychologist said, act like you want act to act like the person you want to be. Yeah, so who do you want to be? You want to be an novelist? Is that what you're acting like? Or what do you oh, mean? Yeah, what do you, but what do you, look, how it's do you... different in different circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's say somebody's wronged you personally. Let's say there's a betrayal in your life, mm -hmm. right? There's a vindictiveness that might swell up. There's fear that you might react to. There's ways you might recoil from an interaction under the guise of your personal outrage and anger, which really means you're afraid to face something in a way that's forthright and honest. And so if I sit down and think about the person who I wanna be, meaning if I'm writing a heroic character, if I'm writing Jimmy Stewart in a Hitchcock thriller, mm -hmm. Right? How would they react? How would someone better than me react? What's the right thing to do? What's the thing to do that's most good or can make the situation, if not good, at least the least awful? Hmm. So those are the sorts of questions. But you'd asked me about, we were talking about the subsidiarity of values. Uh, yes, but I okay. want to go down one more rabbit hole quick and then back, or well, maybe not that quick. Um, so the Stoics believe there is a difference between empathy and sympathy. Yeah. Um, to write these characters, do you have to be empathetic? Do you actually have to feel what they're feeling or are you just sympathetic where you understand what they're feeling? To write them well, I should be empathetic. Mm -hmm. I did an adaptation one at, at one point of a book called Black Flags. It's about Zarqawi, mm -hmm. who was ISIS in Iraq, who was horrific. He beheaded Nick Berg. Um, he, was, he was brilliant. He was horrifically brilliant you know, like Hitler, who was horrific and brilliant both. And one of the things to give you an example that he did was when he had a big plan to unleash a chemical bomb on Amman, but the Mukabarak, the Jordanian um, intelligence stopped it. And he had a realization that the Iraq war was growing very unpopular in America. And so he figured that instead of an elaborate plan that could be foiled, he could kidnap one American backpacker, this kid called Nick Berg, and wearing a mask could just saw his head off live on TV where you hear the sound effects and his screaming and upload it at the right resolution that it could reach broadband that was just stretching into rural areas of America to sort of penetrate America just as the enthusiasm for the Iraq war was waning. Mm. A brilliant act of personal terrorism that's very low risk. It's just one individual personal terror in some ways. You know, if a plane goes down, it's a statistic. Right. And so I was writing the story and I was making the argument, which I do believe that he was a sort of brilliant terrorist. He was very rough. He didn't understand the Quran very well, but he was, uh, you know, I, in it, that one of the metaphors that I used in the script was I was talking about how he's like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs thought about a phone long enough that it was no longer a phone. It was transformative. He thought about music until music was no longer music. It was something you could carry the universe in your pocket. And my argument was that Zarkawi did the same. But to make sure 
you know, when you're writing, you're pulling on the character's mask and trying to see the world through their eye holes, right? Mm -hmm. And every two weeks when I was writing it, I would go back and watch that beheading video. And I, it, it was so awful. It was like that, you know, that full body sweat that you get mm -hmm. just to make sure that I didn't lose myself into moral relativism, right? Because I was basting in his grievance, right? I was basting in his sort of rage and mission and trying to write that from the inside out. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's the best and most compelling way to write. But you, it's, I'm not just writing from his perspective. He still is the force against which I think good is arrayed. But for me to write him properly, I need to go in some ways, In I need to descend into him. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, we can unwind this crazy thread we've done now. <laughs> My original question was around AI. Um, do you think this actually helps you write or is this just a random thing in your toolbox? Like where where does it even live well, in your toolbox? So the Fantasia metaphor, yeah, yeah. right? Uh -huh. We want to be Sorcerer Mickey. First of all, I use AI. I think AI is a wonderful assistant, meaning, you know, if I want to torture somebody using a deli meat slicer, mm -hmm instead of me going and having to find that on a website and download a spec sheet and a PDF, right? I can type in to a, you know, into AI and say, what, what's the, what are the toggles and how do they operate? You have to fact check a lot of this and sure. that's okay though. Yeah. If I wanna know what's the weather, I'm writing a scene that takes place in Maine in June in this region and what's the weather? Could it be raining? You know, what would it feel like? Mm -hmm it can give me a rough set that, that stops me from vaulting through 10 different things, mm -hmm. uh, little grammatical things that I'm checking that are more complicated than just grabbing a thesaurus. Um, I don't write from AI. I don't pull phrases from AI to write. Yeah, yeah. There's three things why I believe that AI should be and most effectively would be subservient to a human creator. So I have three sort of arguments that I would make about that. The first is the issue of transparency, which I think is essential. I'm the co-president of a group called International Thriller Writers. Um, we have, I think, six billion books in print. Everyone, you know, we have everyone from Patterson, the Lee Child. I mean, go down the list. Um, and we did a poll, and one of the things that we realized is 97% of readers do not want to read a book by someone who's dead. They don't want to read a Faulkner novel. If you can push a button and say, oh, it's the Faulkner bot. Let me just read that. We want to know that we are what we are reading. And the same is true for authors and for publishers and editors. It's very important that people understand and that we're transparent with what we're doing, that people don't want to feel duped. And transparency is a big way of how we can build trust among people who are selling. If there is a book that's AI, fine. Just identify that it's AI. This is an AI model book. It's not like we're going to plug our ears and bang our head against the floor and hold our breath, you mm -hmm. know, but people want to know what it is that they're seeing. And the reason for that goes, I believe, to the second point that I think is essential, which is what we want and what we crave and what gives us meaning and what we're drawn to is human excellence. When Deep Blue was created, people didn't want to tune in and watch Deep Blue play Deep Blue. We wanted to see how Kasparov would fare against Deep Blue, mm -hmm. right? I don't want to watch an AI Super Bowl game, right? People want to see how people fare in real life, mm -hmm. right? We want to watch Michael Jordan soar. We want to watch a pole vault or pole vault. I could drill it up and have a pole vaulter, you know, soar 40 feet in the air, but who cares? Right. And so in a lot of ways, 
the notion that a human created something is what we're drawn to. It's why we watch the Olympics. It's why we marvel at Michelangelo. And having that as a value, not just human excellence in a story, but also with a novelist, how they evolve over time. You know, if I'm reading a series of books, reading fill in the blank, Agatha Christie, Megan Abbott, I, I want to see how one brain is evolving and moving across time in ways that are um, idiosyncratic, that are going to be unique. And we're drawn to that. That's what we want to see. Um, and so that's the other point. But the third point, I think, in a lot of ways is the most essential, which is the notion of community, of why we engage in stories. Why we engage in stories is, and you raise part of this, right? Part of this is, is you get to go out and fight the lion without having to risk getting, you know, your arm chewed off. Mm -hmm. um, community is how we share around things. So on the one hand, the fact that we're pretty close to being able to say, look, I want an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel but I want it half the length and my IQ is 111. Can you tune the vocab down to specify that particularly? Oh, and can you please fill it with inside jokes from my social media feeds? Mm -hmm. Boop, and there you get it. On the one hand, what a marvel, right? How amazing we get bespoke content that only we have access to. Mm -hmm. But what's very interesting is in a way, it's very close to an evangelical description of what hell is. Right, if you read like C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, which is humans are distant from God and we're distant from each other. And so we become almost, it's like Wally, -E, the Pixar movie that we're floating around imbibing our own content. And in a way that's a definition of hell. Like what constitutes <laughs> a book in a lot of ways or a story or what gives it great meaning is a shared communal experience around it. And we see this already exemplified in a number of ways. I mean, the first is with streaming, we've lost appointment TV, right? Who shot JR? What's happening on Game of Thrones next week? And we have these very constipated conversations now where we say, oh, there's this, I'm watching White Lotus. Well, what app is it on? Wait, don't tell me I'm on season one. I'm like, we're losing an ability to have the proverbial water cooler conversations. Mm -hmm. And like we used to have with like CBS and ABC, where if you didn't watch it, you didn't see it. That's right. <laughs> or going, you know, I remember waiting online for two hours to see Tim Burton's Batman, right? Mm -hmm. Where it, it came out and you're in the theater and you're sharing an experience. Mm -hmm. And so I could easily spin up an AI bot that generates specific, everyone gets their own Orphan X book, but the meaning of it, why I'm here on book tour, why I'm talking to you is that there's one book that we can discuss that we can share and that other people can read. Each experience will be idiosyncratic books in particular in that, you know, with a movie or a comic or a TV show, I've written all three, everyone sees the same thing. Mm -hmm. Books are very intimate, right? So if I sell a million copies of a book, there's a million different movies playing in a million people's heads, but they plug into the same narrative structure. Mm -hmm. And that's why I go on book tours. That's why I'm on social media and like engaging with readers. That's why I talk to people like you, is that there's something that we can plug into and kind of commune around that is shared. And the notion of having everything that's tailored just to us, it's Pleasure Island from Pinocchio, yep. right? Or it's it's what's happening with pornography with mm -hmm. a lot of young men now where the rates of, you know, uh, inability to perform are like escalating because on the one hand, you know, a 12-year-old with a internet connection has access to more sexual imagery than his predecessors all the way back to the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And so the more that you can get everything that you want, the more distant we're getting from being able to figure out how to have a real 
physical relationship or how to engage with intimacy. Getting, we don't know what the hell we want. We think we know what we want, but if we get everything we want all the time, we're and, just a rat hitting a, a lever. But yes, but and yet we're still doing it, which is interesting. Like we're rats hitting a lever. We are rats hitting a lever, and we're hitting it faster and faster. And the lever is getting smarter about helping us press it. Well, think about what we're <laughs> think about it. Like if you're a kid. You don't even have your prefrontal cortex myelinated yet, right. right? You're 12, 16, 18. What you're up against when you go on a social media app or even when news cycles are reading you, what you're up against literally are teams of addiction specialists powered with deep machine algorithmic targeting that is designed to ensnare you. It's designed to make it sticky that you can't leave an app. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the best way to do that? Outrage, anxiety, depression. And for and, some reason, and rewards. and rewards, but also what rewards, right? I mean, the because, rewards are garbage, but they might be like a funny meme. It's like, oh, boring, right. boring, it, boring, funny, ha, huh? and yeah. you get the dopamine hit. Right, and then you get intermittent reinforcement like yep. a slot machine, yep. right? Oh, yes. it's all these bad comments, but one person said I look pretty. Yep. You know, and you're a 15 year old girl trying to figure out your place in the world and you're wired to compete in some manner on a social dominance hierarchy and you're engaging with curated images that make no sense. You know, it used to be that if you went back to school, let's say at the end of the summer, you'd find out that, you know, some other friends went to Hawaii and you weren't included. Well, it's a sad moment at recess before you go to class. Now you're watching it minute by minute, everyone's magnificent life. And what they're posting is these wonderful, you know, museum lit shots of pure joy intended in some ways to elicit envy. They're not talking about, well, I got stung by a jellyfish and we got in a fight and my parents are assholes and <laughs> we're not seeing any of that. So we're constantly competing with these these sort of false, false narratives and it's overwhelming. And for some reason, as adults, as lawmakers, as a culture, we've decided that we're just helpless to combat or put strictures around it. Like the fact that we have kids with their phones in school is just insane. Right. It's like... <laughs> I mean, it's like when we were growing up, if someone was like, oh, well, you can be in school, but here's unlimited pornographic magazines that you can access whenever you want all the time and social gossip networks that are constantly going to surround and entrance you. And we've just said, well, we don't know what to do. We can't take the phones away from our kids. We can't we can't have adult parameters. It's not democratic. It's like it's crazy if you think about it. It is crazy. So. It sounds like you do use it at to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, I I actually am kind of curious what you think about this. What about the idea of feeding um, a rough sketch of what what the scene is, let's say, into ChatGPT and having it output a Dolly image or set of images, and then taking that and going, actually, there are things that I may not have thought to describe, because it's one thing having it in your head, and it's a whole other thing seeing someone's interpretation although it's not a person but an interpretation of what you're talking about it probably won't be very good but it might go oh actually yeah the car should be over on the left not on the right um because that would actually add something interesting or you know oh actually this building could be a brick facade that would actually make it if the bullets were ricocheting off i could do something interesting with that description or what you know like it might elicit a whole other set of creativity based on an, a bad, probably, interpretation of what you just said, just by virtue of kind of regurgitating back your thoughts back to you. And well, we have to be careful how much we seed to it, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is, 
you know, part of what Michelangelo said was, you know, he he could see the sculpture within the block of marble, mm -hmm. right? And clearly, I, to not compare myself to Michelangelo, but to talk about the artistic processes, yeah, yeah. the way that I see a story, the way that I'm watching something unfold, that's something. It's almost, it's almost sacred, because mm -hmm. I don't, you don't know where it comes from. I and mean, one of the things that I think there's so much neuroses and anxiety among artists is you don't know where it comes. Like I could wake up tomorrow and just not be able to write dialogue anymore. It's not a training. It's not like I'm a surgeon or an engineer that rules continue to hold. Dialogue's different every time out. And I don't want to tamper too much with my notion of what the form is within the stone. So if I give it to the to AI, AI basically is a conglomeration of everything that's been done before. And, you know, while I can't claim that everything that I do is, you know, wildly innovative to the point that it's never been considered in writing before, it is my own. It is my own approach forward. And if I say, hey, write an action sequence, what I do when I'm writing Orphan X, every scene, every interaction, confrontation, challenge, action scene, it should it should dovetail back into character. So if, if Evan Smoke does something or the action sequence is exactly what James Bond would do or Jason Bourne or Jack Reacher, I haven't done my job in making it specific enough. Hmm. And so if I'm submitting that to ones and zeros and kind of machine learning, I'm asking it to spit out already what's been done. And so I have certain chokes on when I'll and how I'll do that. If I'm saying, look, I want this to take place in, you know, I have a scene in my mind and it's in the Bronx and what are the buildings made of? Mm -hmm. Well, that's research, right? If I don't want to get on a plane and fly to the Bronx, right? I have a notion of what I want to look at. I can poke around and do better, way more enhanced. It's a way more enhanced version of a Google search, which by the way, deals with AI regardless. Spellcheck deals with AI. So we're we're already on a slippery slope. Right. It's not like it's not like I'm existing, floating, devoid from having engaged with it regardless. But I do have limits to it where I'm setting the scene and then saying, Well, what are the buildings like what year were a lot of these buildings made? You know, oh, it's okay. And so I can follow my own flights of fancy and have them sort of described more robustly and then I can decide what I want to pick and construct but I don't let them lead I meant mostly visual actually in my example so like literally creating an image and saying this is a this is an image of the Bronx you're like oh I didn't even think there's a gangplank you know you didn't necessarily think to ask that question but you uh, know well that's not that much different than me doing a Google search of an correct. area I'm writing about correct which but, is, uh, but it might be a very it might be a place that doesn't really exist in nature and then it creates something you're like hmm actually it could be a round building instead of a square building and that actually that adds an extra dimension about like how do you hide around a yeah i'm just making stuff up yeah um but i will i will i have a pro and a con to what you just said so the con which i think is my biggest beef with anybody using it for writing is it's a great middling it's like it's not very good at writing about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or really anything contentious. Um, it's just not. It 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 doesn't like doing it. Anything like overtly racist or sexist or whatever. And a lot of the best Hollywood movies have racism and sexism, and you know people getting killed and suicide and you know whatever, right? Drug use. Uh, it just doesn't really want to write that stuff. It's like, you know, please don't do this. And like, you know, this is for informational use. It's like get a paragraph and a half on both sides of the text before it'll even output a couple of sentences on the topic. 
Um, yeah, it's infuriatingly prude. It really is. And, and there's other And that's one. very dangerous because the guardrails of what we're allowed to discuss. 100%. I mean, I've had stuff of like, what's, you know, what's more a more effective way to kill somebody? And it gives me a lecture. And right. I say, I'm a thriller writer. Like I've argued with AI, yeah. you know, give me this. And they say, well, this isn't appropriate and contact a professional. And it's like, well, how do you get to determine <laughs> that then? Like, what else do you get to determine that isn't appropriate access to information? Right. Or what do you determine that you can scold me about? So Who gets to set the terms by which the Overton window gets shrunk on what I should be scolded about? There, there are ways around this. Um, a, you can actually put, you can build a scene uh, where you have characters in the scene and then have those characters playing out a plot. It'll still try to get you on guardrails, but it's better. Um, there's other things like Mixtral, a, um, the Mixtral algorithm, um, which you can just download from um, um, Hugging Face. But also uh, like Gab AI, I think all those things are uncensored-ish. They will still give you a bit of a lecture, but they'll do it. Uh, they'll they'll mm. actually output the the text. But I think the the pro uh, to to doing it this way using AI is we already have a middling because clearly you and me and everybody who's ever written a word has written it based on prior experience with other people in other situations. Um, there's not that much true innovation in the world. And so are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater on this one and saying, well, I don't, I want to have any AI because I'm worried about, you know, plagiarism, but maybe not in the, in the bad sense of plagiarism, but just like stealing other people's ideas and thoughts and, and trying to repackage it as my own. But aren't we always kind of doing that to some degree? And so where do you land on that? Well, look, I mean, I think there, there's always to some extent the anxiety of influence, right? We are standing on the shoulders of great thinkers and artists before us mm -hmm. and not great artists and thinkers before us all the time. Right. I mean, the question is when you say there's not that much innovation is, well, do you want to condition your brain so that when those crumbs of innovation come to you, that you can recognize them and use them and, you know, polish them up into something other than what they are? Mm -hmm. Or do we just seed ground and go, well, everything's sort of a template. There's 10 kinds of a story. We can cut it all these ways. And here you go. Here's a perfectly serviceable thriller. Mm -hmm. For me, um, <laughs> you know, look, one of... I meet a lot of people who want to be writers. I meet very few people who want to write. The act of writing, the act of positioning myself in a way where it works. It's like, you know, when we're, when you're doing well in a sport or for you, I'm sure you've had this when you're hacking, like there's, there's ways you get into this place that you're in the zone. And how do we always describe it? Right? Like if we're talking about Michael Jordan, we'll say he was out of his head and mm -hmm. a flow like, state. Yeah. yeah, you're not in your to me that act of writing when it's good. I'm not saying it's always good, but you can condition through ritual and training to try and get there. That's what the point of it is for me. It's not to have the outcome. It's not to ha like some people say I I I don't like writing but I like having written. It's like, well, I like having written, but writing for me is the thing. It's like it, it's like I don't want to have won a Super Bowl, you want to play in the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And why would we shortcut our experience in the world? You know, I mean, again, to go back to the pornography metaphor, which seems a strange one, but it's really just I like, I don't the, think it does. It's I think the most it's, law. It's, it's the most, I think it's the perfect metaphor, right? It's like, well, what do you want? Do you want to be in your basement? Like watching ever ending, ever more extreme variations of something that's rendered 
flatly in ones and zeros, or do you want to be out and engage in experiences in the real world that can lead to a wealth of three-dimensional experiences with other humans mm -hmm. that might lead to intercourse? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, and then and then maybe that leads to you know intimacy and meaning. You know, mm -hmm. eventually. Yeah. I mean, whether it's it's hedonistic or whether it's you or know truly meaningful. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and so. So, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that it, that can be middling, like my, for me, exercising my brain and my creative capabilities, such as they are on any given day, mm -hmm. is the point. That's where... So where do you get that from? If, if it's not, if it's not just reading the, the output of very intelligent people in the past, where do you, where do you get it? I, I don't know. I mean, that's, it's magic. <laughs> I look, one of my friends, Jim Keller, who's a computer chip, I mean, arguably the greatest computer chip designer ever. We had a joking conversation about this when, you know, early, early days with AI. I said, but, you know, what about the human spark, human genius? He goes, oh, so you believe in magic. He's such an engineer, right? Mm -hmm. He's like a total savage. He's also right. a stunt pilot. And he's like the most <laughs> engineering engineer you'll ever meet. Like uh -huh. he knows how everything's worked down to the like the atomic level, right, right, you know? Right. And so we have this funny kind of back and forth, but, um, and I think in the time since he's grown less confident that AI could write a perfect Faulkner novel was the particular argument we were having. Mm -hmm. But there is something to be said for like, I don't know when things are going really well, where that comes from, like to use the earlier, uh, to tack back to it, you know, there's times where, what we're trying to do is access something that's greater than us in all senses of greater. And the creative process can be part of that. You know, it's like when you talk about a flow state, I was a pole vaulter in college. I played soccer. There's times when something's ingrained in muscle memory and action where if you told me, okay, you're going to, you know, kick the ball this way with your left foot with enough spin that like, there's no way you can think about that. Mm. And who knows where we, you know, one question that I get asked a lot as a novelist is where do you get your ideas? And I always say, I don't know, where do you get your ideas? How do we know where our ideas come from? Mm. But the exploration of that. I will tell you one trick that I use and may or this may or may not be helpful for your process. I pick two as random things as I can come up with, which is obviously not random at all because it came from my same place in my brain. But, you know, just I'll, you know, look across the room, I'll see something as random as a thing is in my room. And then I'll try to come up with some conceptual thing that's like truly just in my brain, not something I can see in the room. <laughs> and I'll try to say how are these two things related. So, like unicycle and manifest destiny. Yes. Go. Okay. Ready, set, go. And then you're like, well, like there's a lot fine we'll do it just together you know okay well maybe unicycles when when you're first thinking about a unicycle you're like what's the purpose of this use it's like there's no real purpose for it it's just it's just entertainment right and it's an entertainment of a of a kind that your dad will be mad at you if you decide to become a unicyclist professionally right <laughs> that is not a real job but you're manifesting your destiny you know what i mean so it's like mm. you sort of force yourself to think in these very weird paths to get there and i've done it with some of my friends and uh, they've ended up writing massive research papers on their outputs like big like important papers came out of these like, you know, how do cell phones relate to uh, economics mm, uh, mm. in third world countries? And they're like, oh, my God, actually, just oh, I got to go write some stuff down right now because they've never they've never done that kind of exercise before. 
but it's very useful just to keeping your brain limber. So you're a lot, you're allowing yourself to think about anything right. in, in relation to anything. And, um, you'll see weird linkages all over the place. Not that you know that they're linked, but more like I can see how I could string this all together. I get it. I get it. So like for me, it'd be our manifest destiny is America swelling to fill the continent with, you know, unlimited expansion and ambition, mm-hmm. right? And that ambition to do things that are um, wild and unrestrained could be as equivalent as trying to get up and balance yourself on a single wheel. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And so if you if you do that kind of exercise, I used to do it about once a day. Um, usually when I'm driving, I'll just come up with some random mm-hmm. two things to think about. And it's actually very useful because after the, after doing it for a while, I did it for a couple of months, nothing really seemed like a barrier in my mind anymore. It's interesting because a lot of what I do as a novelist or as when I'm writing is so much of it is practicing out of the box thinking. Cause as I said, you know, if I'm writing a thriller and it's like every other thriller, Oh, there's an action scene. Oh, there's a conflict. Well, here's how that gets resolved. You know, mm-hmm. fuck me, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what are all the dialogues? Mm-hmm. What are all the things that we've seen? What are all the tropes? Mm-hmm. And what you're constantly trying to do is to break out of that and to have things that are sort of recognizable enough, but are outside of the box of what expectations are. And there's that delightful moment of surprise that happens, you know, like use the sixth sense as an example, right? Like when there's a twist that is infamous, spoiler alert for <laughs> the two people watching this, you haven't seen the sixth sense, uh, Bruce Willis's dad. But when you have a twist that works, in 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 fiction and narrative in movies what should happen is is that it catches you completely by surprise and makes perfect sense at the same time it's like this wonderful combination of the two Mm -hmm. because it's it's filled the box of expectations and then inch just beyond that outside of the box Mm -hmm. and i think that's part of what you're practicing is Mm -hmm. that limber nature yeah it reminds me of something i think the cia don't quote me on this maybe the nsa i'm not sure Uh, they have some like internal newsletter that's like the most subscribed newsletter that's within with whatever agency it comes from and the entire point of it is it just a make-believe story they uh they say what happens if um india can no longer import uh or comes across a new type of crop uh that'll that means that they no longer have to import coffee like what happens mm. what happens to the coffee market and then with downstream effects and then all of a sudden venezuela is involved and now they're having to recover in these weird ways and they're going to start moving these and troop movements and both mm. you know what i mean and suddenly there's like this massive ex you know all this new trade going on in india because coffee is you know blah blah, blah whatever right just they come up with some random set of things and people are like yeah that is a fragile part of the ecosystem that we're just not paying attention to because why would you? Because it's not a real thing that's ever happened. But it gets people thinking about all these other things that might be relevant to what they're working on. And some of this, I think, you know, it's interesting that you raise that. I've been thinking a lot about how we've been, we've grown up essentially, we're roughly the same age in this idol, right? Sort of post World War II up until this moment right now where the world is reconstituting itself. Cold War II. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. And what's really interesting is we have certain expectations for stability that we wouldn't have at any other time in the historic record. 
And I think what we're happen what we're seeing now is that we're having to figure out how to complex how to navigate complex change at an enormously rapid rate. And part of it is I think we're so in certain regards softened from luxury or softened from safety or security that we're in this constant state of wanting to like not let in information that we don't like, right? We're seeing this a lot in the polarization of the news. We're also being, I believe, preyed upon by, you know, the hate industrial complex, for lack of a better word, which includes, you know, political fundraising to social media, to news sources, um, all the kind of capture and codified corruption. Um, but one of the things that I think we need to do is to figure out how we can toughen up culturally, societally, within our families, within our communities, all the way up. Um, in order to recognize that complex change is here, change is going to be happening at a massively accelerating rate. And we keep wanting, I think, in certain ways to stop it or have things return to normal rather than understanding that we need to surf it now. You don't want to make America great again? Is that what yeah. you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> again, you know, again. Yeah. I mean, maybe we don't need, you know, 77 and an 81 year old running for office, right? When we're contending with these issues, maybe we need to have a, a different sort of vigor and courage and brashness and boldness and daring of spirit. And those are not the preeminent values. I think in a lot of ways, they've been defined more by uh, sort of meanness, uh, a Malthusian kind of good and evil, limited resources, zero sum game. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, sort of elevating uh, softer values, which are important, you know, inclusion, uh, diversity, let's say, but we're elevating them to the highest of all value sets. And so we have these structures, again, subsidiarity of values. We're setting up these structures in a way that just don't make foundational sense if we elevate the wrong thing. Should empathy be the highest of all values? Well, no, because you know, big five trait conscientiousness is the second indicator of success after IQ. Mm -hmm. It codes for more stable finances, better health, uh, longer marriages and longer lifespan. It's pretty useful, right? We need things in balance and we need to understand them in relation to each other. Um, and, you know, in seeding that with these structures, you know, we're losing the place of saying, well, what about adventure? What about daring? What mm -hmm. about risk? Are we trying to live in a world with no risk? Are we trying to live in a world where we mitigate any possible risk on the basis of any possible vulnerability? Buy your headset now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you can live in a perfectly safe virtual world. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the the election. It is something I want to talk to you about because it's coming up. Um, if you're so daring. Um, so I looked at the 538 uh, website, which is kind of left-leaning because it's ABC uh, affiliate. But I think they do a pretty good job, ultimately, uh, of pulling together lots of different polls from lots of different places and trying to put them all together and add some meaning to it, some context. Uh, they have not been saying very good things polling-wise about Biden so far. Um, yeah, right now, I believe, if memory serves, he is pulling the worst, uh, I think, since maybe Ford or somebody uh, for this time in his in the election period <clears throat> and worse than Trump, although I think Trump did eventually go lower. I think that was related to uh, the Jan 6 stuff. Um, the, what, the what stuff? The January 6 um, mm -hmm. uh, stuff that happened. So. Firstly, um, 
I mean, it, unless something big happens, and um, I don't know what that would be. Um, it looks very much like Trump is ahead um, in polling, um, not by a terribly large margin. I think like four percent or something. But um, what do you think? I mean, do you think there can be some some big shakeup that you know changes that? Certainly. Uh, and do you think that's coming imminently, or is it? Um, it's just a you know roll of the dice at this point. I think any look nine months is an enormously long time with the speed that things are going. Mm. You know, a poll just came out today that said eighty six percent of Americans think that Biden is too old to run. I think it's sixty six, sixty seven percent of people think Trump is too old to run. Mm-hmm. America does not want these candidates. The no. primaries, um, you know, represent a fraction of actual voters. And basically, part of what's happened that's been fascinating to me is we are, you know, I have my personal preference as to who would be better of those two for America, I think. But we've lost an ability. You can't demand of people that they not notice and articulate and discuss reality. So the fact that, you know, Trump is thuggish in his actions, right, and lawless in a particular manner um, around election denialism, fill in the blanks, is, is that's not a conversation that you can expect people not to have. You can't expect people not to have a conversation about Biden, who's 81 years old, and his age. There's certain things that everybody is observing, but for some reason, we're cast in this area that if anybody wants to observe and discuss them in any way, the reputational and financial damage is well, just let's, devastating. Let's do it. Let's be and, brave. Let's do it right now. Okay. Um, I mean, my opinion on Trump, I, I was never really a Trump fan to begin with. So, and especially after Jan six and especially after, you know, him obstructing <laughs> the investigation into his, into his Florida home. I mean, like this is not a great candidate. I mean, it, there's, there's lots of problems with, with this particular candidate. And then Biden, um, I don't know if you saw his like retort to uh, the her commission thing, which was just a jumbled mess. Um, like he's misnaming presidents. And then the her report itself is, I mean, this is a man who suffered two strokes before becoming president. He's not, he's, it's actually not nice. They should, <laughs> this is like my grandfather. Like he, you should, he should not be doing this job. Like, the reaction I think that a lot of people are having is in response to that, it is unacceptable to say you're not allowed to say that because you saying that empowers Trump and Trump being president hastens the end of the world. So you can't think that or say that. And that's a preposterous position to it's take. Just, I mean, they're both not very good candidates. I think it's the, right. it's, the, it's the God's honest look, truth. If you imagine, <laughs> I mean, look, Trump is 77, so he'd be what, 78, 82 you know, in his at the end of this term, uh, Biden would be 85 years old. Imagine an 85 year old person, then imagine them under unimaginable pressure. It's the most stressful uh, and important and demanding and taxing job in the history of the world. The presidency of the United States is the greatest non-lethal combat in the history of the world. And do a Google search of 
80, 82 if it's Trump or 86 year olds? Is that who we want going up against Putin and Xi and engaging with super complicated matters around AI? Right. And <laughs> the fact that we are being asked to not have that conversation, because if you're on the right and you concede in any way that Trump isn't the best choice, you're hastening like the Marxist revolution and overthrow of America. Right. And vice versa. If you mention if you mention the, and you cannot demand that everybody lie all the time and not acknowledge reality and not also say, look, here's the drawbacks of Trump and here's the drawbacks of Biden. Biden's age is certainly an issue, as I believe Trump's is, you know, and here's problems with one and pros and cons and here's problems and pros and cons with another. And I've made the assessment and I feel very strongly that candidate A or candidate B is that and I'm going to vote for them. Well, that's a conversation people will engage in. But this notion that we cannot say anything because the information itself is so damaging that anything that we say that is in support of stating what reality is, is hastening the overthrow of the world. Um, it's not tenable. It's not people. It's just bullshit. Voters don't want that. It's insulting. It, we're it, telling people that they can't, they can't believe or discuss or assess things, even if they come to a different conclusion. Look, if it is Trump versus Biden, I know which way I'll vote. People can determine which ways they're going to vote. I also think there's arguments that can be made as to why um, we better be assessing in very intense terms which what the problems will be with the commander in chief and leader of the free world. And to try to hijack that or or... She, we we talked a little bit, I believe, last time about pluralistic ignorance, mm -hmm. right? Pluralistic ignorance is what cults use. Yes. Where everybody's miserable, but they can't talk to each other because the structure. So think North Korea, right? Everyone's starving to death and miserable, but you're not allowed. <laughs> you know, it's why um, group shift dynamics, 12 Angry Men illustrates this well, where mm -hmm. if you have one person who is willing to consistently and ethically state a proper position or an, a, a moral position, you can shatter a spell of pluralistic ignorance. But a lot of people right now are miserable, but they won't speak up because they see all the penguins jostled off the cliff, right? So with Republicans, you see it if somebody says, well, clearly Biden won the election, right? It's It's been, it's, it's been very clearly determined. That's not acceptable to say you're gone, you're excised, your career's over, you're ruined. And with the left, if people make an observation, Dean Phillips, who's who's you know running the primary Biden, I think of a, a, a very respectful primary. You know, he's asking for a competition and a battle of ideas, which I think, you know, before we coronate somebody to run the world for five more years, you know, um, if he's not a good challenger, Biden should be able to crush him like a bug. Right. And you know, <laughs> Biden has that right. But, you know, he's been excised. Um, he's been completely denigrated by the system. Um, and that's OK. I mean, that's that's what it means right now to do. But the more people who speak up to shatter this spell and pick a topic, it's around um, <coughs> abortion. It's around trans rights. It's around DEI. It's around uh, October 7th. We immediately scuttle into it's a black or white issue. That's all that you're allowed to say or think. And okay. it's just not tenable. And at some point, something's going to break. So last time you said, and I quote, um, we're talking about Trump. Um, and after he was elected, you said, how did Trump become the more palatable option? And it was a question you asked yourself. Mm. So let's say we fast forward nine months and everything's status quo. It stays as is. Nikki Haley's out. Trump and Biden are it. Trump's ahead by four points. He wins. How 
did he become the more palatable option? I mean, can we can we unwind yeah, that? Uh, yeah, I think that. Um, like let let's get ahead of this if that's if so that's the situation. I, okay, so I'm going to now <clears throat> do something which I, we should let's explore some ideas without me advocating for yeah. those ideas, which is something that seems completely lost in contemporary discourse. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to every one of these. <laughs> but 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 so so there there is a version where people will look at it and say, and by the way, I think the Republicans have showed this really feckless response to the border bill that was passed, you know, shows that they're playing games with it like the Democrats did with abortion, mm -hmm. just to sidetrack. Democrats managed to enshrine gay marriage at a federal level, right? Um, they could have done the same with abortion. Uh, and we know, we did a lot of polling, we know where most Americans come down on it, which is um, rape, incest, life of mother, viability of fetus, first trimester, give or take two weeks. And that likely could have been enshrined. And if you hold that to be a value, which I do, the right to choose within reasonable parameters, um, that likely could have been put through by the lame duck Congress. But instead, they every bill that was put forth was like Roe v. Wade and beyond, which ensures that every Republican would vote against it, which means that then the fundraising and outrage can continue because it's a very successful model, which means that here we are. Mm -hmm. um, Republicans, I think, in a lot of ways have just showed the same thing about the border. But let's, you know, with now there's a proposal that's put forth, but they'd rather not pass the proposal because that's the directive that in a lot of ways they were given from Trump in order to then run against the open border policies of Democrats. Yes. Nonetheless, I've heard, I've heard the same thing. It is fair to say that the Democrats have been more open border in orientation than Republicans. Yes. Despite this showing of clear partisan value over the value of issues, mm -hmm. right? The same way that Democrats still have been more uh, seriously advocating of choice than Republicans. So there is a model in which somebody could say, look, there's two sort of templates of what we're going to see. We're either going to see an influx of people in an uncontrolled environment where immigration occurs at too fast a rate for people to Americanize, that we can have a shared set of values. Um, as Americans, um, those involve right to trial. Those involve, you know, a, a basis of merit, equality under the law, right? Um, whatever, whatever that constellation is. And we will rapidly globalize in the face of that uh, and lose control in some ways of our national identity, as we're seeing in certain countries in Europe. If you look at Sweden, if you look at France, if yeah. you look to some extent at England and um if America becomes more rapidly global and can't hold and integrate American values and standards of what constitutes, you know, why we've had, why America has differentiated itself from the rest of the world, we will become more global and more global means less rights and less freedoms and more violence and more chaos. And that situation is harder to get back from. It could be argued than if Trump wins and will advocate an Orban style like pushing out and consolidation of the parameters like as Orban has in Hungary. Again, I want to be clear, I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying that is a position that is worth occupying if you are a Democrat. The other thing that I will say is the control over um, the intrusion of um, DEI. One of the things that we've seen is that the sort of unchecked movement of identifying people primarily on the basis of uh, group identity. Um, one of the things that we saw, I think, very clearly in the wake of October 7th is that 
you know, there's one group that doesn't fit neatly into oppressed and oppressor categories, right? And that's Jews. And that's why I think Jews often are the canary in the coal mine um, of um, right before the world tears itself apart. And there's a number <laughs> of reasons for that that we can get into. But I, I do think that the reestablishment of merit um, and an understanding that America, you know, previous to this push was not doing the best job and had a lot to improve about equality of opportunity, which is very distinct from equality of outcome. Yes. Quality of opportunity, if, if we threw a broader net and had broader support into the primary resource of the American people, of, of America, which is the American people, and that that is you know, urban environments that have been left behind and rural environments that have been absolutely ravished by the opioid epidemic and right. left behind on infrastructure with jobs. Um, that in investment into those communities to ensure, first of all, that's long-term national security and stability and economic growth, yeah, GDP, right? Yeah. So if, if you wanna be winning economically in three years and five years, but also in 10 and 20, you don't just have unchecked acceleration of the division between classes right, and the wealth gap growing to a yawning abyss. That doesn't work anywhere in the world, so we need to halt that. Nonetheless, that said, when you're asking me to do this thought exercise, yeah. okay, so we have unchecked immigration without sufficient integration into key American ideals um, and American laws and American structure and values, right? Then we have the elevation of group identity, um, which I think we can see pretty clearly leads to tribalism, which leads to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism tends to lead to the world tearing itself apart. That's not particularly good. And then we have um, an articulated intrusion into parental rights around key issues, including sexual identity of children. Now, uh, as somebody who um, trans and trans rights, it's 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 staggering to me that this has been a predominant thread in the political conversation for eight years. Right. Um, I think to me, it's also really exemplifies the capture of outrage news sources. And to my mind, everyone has taken the bait. I do believe there are people who are trans who are our best and the most fulfilled version of themselves um, in identifying or transitioning into a different body. I mm -hmm. also think it's exceedingly rare. Mm -hmm. I think that what we're looking at is rapid uh, onset gender dysphoria. It's another issue that no one's been able to discuss without being utterly destroyed, mm -hmm. including you know J.K. Rowling, who is literally has a quotation where she says, "If you are trans and being discriminated against on the basis." of you being trans, I will march with you to support your rights. I just have different opinions. That statement by her led to her being essentially excised from civil culture, the predominant culture. When Warner Brothers had an anniversary of Harry Potter, her name wasn't on it and she wasn't invited. Mm -hmm. So you think about her position on trans rights relative to the average uh, American or human and the fact that she is deemed an unacceptable member of society as somebody who would march and accept that and and defend that as somebody who's given countless money to uh, homeless uh, uh, women and children, one of the predominant myth makers of our side, people look at that and view that as insane. And any process of, well, let me not detour too much. So, so now you have two things. You have Trump's um, willful destruction, I think, of American norms. You have uh, January... Um, um, 
6, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm sorry. I was, I'm stuck on October 7th. Um, <laughs> Talk about that in a You second. know, with his encouragement and, you know, people say it's insurrection. It's not insurrection. Well, what would have happened, do you think, if the mob had got their hands on Pence? What would have happened if Pence had, had said, I'm not going to do this? If Trump had had the option, if it had continued, even if you believe his actions fall short of it, if you do that thought exercise... Well, what would have happened if he did have the choice, the results were not certified and he got his people in and was given the power to say, okay, it's up to you now. You now have control enough that you can overturn the results or not overturn the results. I think we know which way he would go. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty vast threat. Um, although, but nonetheless, although I've I have had a couple people in that have been in the White House, we're in Trump's White House the week before on the podcast and him and his team did decide not to do certain things that were almost certainly in that direction. So part of me thinks maybe not. Maybe mm. he actually would have just said, well, I need to make a show out of it for the crowd, but you know, I'm, mm. I'm not going to I'm not going to come out a loser. I'm going to come out as cheated, but I'm going to come out. Okay. Well, that's that's a not uh out mm. of the realm of possibility. I'm not to, saying to it's true, mind, but, but to that's, my mind that's what I've been told. He's shown a real uh, sort of uh need to surround himself with devout loyalists, mm -hmm. right? And I think that his next candidacy or his next presidency, should he win, would be pretty alarming. We wouldn't have a lot of the checks and balances that we've otherwise enjoyed. But nonetheless, um, you've asked me to sort of make this case. Yeah. So now we have the temple of democracy, right? We have our democratic norms. We have our standing on the world stage with NATO. There's all these concerns. If that's opposed to now, which there are bills that have passed that the government can come under your roof with your kid and determine that your kid can be taken out of your home and deemed to be abused if they don't want to switch genders as a choice that they made with a 12-year-old brain, even if that is rare. It's unbelievably tangible for Americans. Right. And one thing is abstract. It's like when you talk about the bottom line and bottom dollar mm -hmm. that people have, if gas is expensive and you can't fill your truck to get to your job and you're an electrician and you've got your health care is unaffordable and you've got a special needs kid and you have a parent in a home, you're not worried about NATO or about Israel or about the temple of democracy. You're worried about your paycheck. And if you're seeing increasingly, and look, even if a lot of people argue that, for instance, the trans or the DEI craze are overinflated by the right wing media. That is a position that I'm not, I'm putting forth. A lot of people have that belief. If that's your belief, okay, there still is a reason why Democrats have not repudiated that sufficiently and made clear. Mm -hmm. And the Democratic Party, from my experience, the biggest caucus in Congress is the New Dem caucus. And they're very moderate. They're very pro-capitalist. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful leadership within the Democratic Party. Um, Alyssa Slotkin, for me, is like the dead center of the party. She's magnificent. She's running for Senate in... Um, Michigan right now, reasonable, smart, 20 years CIA. But there has been a failing, certainly on a messaging level, as there has been from the Biden White House to determine and handle the issues of his age with clarity. There has been a failing of Democrats to say, well, what is the line of what's too far then? If you're saying this is a non-issue, if the intrusion of the state into things as fundamental as the identity of your children if that's too far and it's not relevant, we'll come out and say you're opposed to it. Like I, like I was pushing members of 
the party to come out and be vehemently opposed to the Antifa riots, which I thought were preposterous. Right. And when I did and asked for a public, I, I did a lot of help and, vol, uh, and pro bono work with Democrats trying to wrangle them from the left and make good faith arguments um, to moderate independent voters and, and Democrats. I've spent a good amount of time doing that. But with with the Antifa riots, it was like people people are concerned about it. And I kept saying, if you're scared of AOC's Twitter following, no one's going to trust you with a nuclear football. Mm -hmm. And so that's the argument that I would make is people would look at it and say, look, these are two terrible options. And what it comes down to really fundamentally is what our what your constitution is. It's we can both people on both sides believe that the other party is brainwashed, that they're in sway to captured experts, that they're in sway to their news channels. They're perfect mirror arguments of how polarization is happening, perfectly mirrored. Mm. If you talk about the Antifa rights that caused $2 billion of damage, the argument and path of and dismissal of that, and you talk about January 6th, and of course they're different and one's federal and et cetera, et cetera. But the structures of the arguments <laughs> mirror each other quite uh, impeccably. And so, you know, the argument for what people will choose will be on the basis of a number of things. One of the hugest ones comes down to the, you know, those big, we talked a little bit about big five personality structures. Yeah. A lot of your viewers or listeners will be more familiar with uh, Myers-Briggs tests. Mm -hmm. So one of the big traits that determines liberalism is trait openness. And openness means I like new ideas and people. I like thinking outside of boxes. It's why liberals congregate in cities. We have different people and accents and food, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so things are open. We, we Visionaries, Steve Jobs. So think visionaries versus CEOs who make the products run on time. Right. And so conservatives are lower in trade openness. They like things closed, right? They want a border around the country. Build a wall is a very clear thing. They want to not, you know, it's, I don't mean this in a prurient way, but it's yeah, yeah. penetration of new ideas, right? right? It's yeah, yeah. penetration of a vaccine in your body if you don't have say over it. It's mm -hmm. people flooding into your community versus liberals tend to be um, more open around those things. And if, depending on which way your big five personality trait is structured is, is the biggest predictor of political orientation, whether political or conservative of almost anything aside from like where you were raised. And so which threats you are going to spark to, we can't help what we first fear. And so if you have a conservative, low openness mindset, I like borders around gender. I, there's a lot of people who are like, I'm fine with, you know, stuff that isn't neatly defined, but I don't want to be forced to celebrate what I'm only going to be willing to tolerate. But if your inclination is that your low trait openness, high trait conscientiousness, you like consistency and things running, you're an engineer, you're a CEO, you're not a visionary, you're not an artist, the things that will spark to you that you will fear first are gonna come more from the democratic side, either what they are advocating or what is being spun by that side of the media or what they're refusing to stand up for and clarify. Mm -hmm. And if your high trade openness, if your higher trade empathy, uh, if your value set tends to be, you're very comfortable with multiculturalism, you love different people and cultures, the bigger threats that you will see on the horizon, it, you're gonna see across the aisle coming in from either Republicans or what the media and news sources are from that side. Mm -hmm. So we can't choose what it is we first fear. We can't choose our personality profile. And we have a structure that's established. And of course, the great either tragedy or opportunity in this is that 
those trait structures of high or low trait openness, they're uniform across races and gender and religion. It's not like black and brown people are more trait open or not. And mm -hmm. I always laugh when people talk about, you know, the the the, the huge liberalism in the communities. It's like, how, how many, like, you know, I have a, <laughs> I, I grew up in California. I have Mexican <clears throat> family and friends and ex-girlfriends. And it's like, have you met Hispanics in the world? You know, it's like, have you met people's grandmas and spent time in the communities? That's not a predominantly progressive culture. We're evenly distributed. You know, and so when people get really puzzled being like, why are all these black men voting for Trump now, which was something we saw really clearly, it's like what how we're designed, whether you view that as being evolutionarily selected, let's say, or God given, our trait structures are balanced across this openness and conscientiousness. And there's a reason for that, because the two of them in concert is how we navigate complex change. Right. So mm -hmm. if we just build a wall and we make it impenetrable and we vilify immigrants, right, new ideas and people don't come in and we stagnate and die. If we open it up and it's completely porous, if we have our whole value set is that we want to elevate the fringe to the center, the center can't hold because the fringe has a fringe and the fringe's fringe has a fringe and the fringe's fringe's fringe has a fringe and everything deteriorates. Mm -hmm. But the two of them working good faith in concert is is actually one of the greatest strengths that we have. Um, it's baked into our evolutionary design. And America is a, is a place where those two things in concert can be spectacular. And it's why, like you see with Apple, right? They had Steve Jobs, who's an incandescent genius, and he's kind of all over them. They fire him. Well, we know how to run this without Steve Jobs. And you get all the conservatives in and they know how to run everything, you know, but then at a certain point, they're out of new ideas and you bring Jobs back. The mm -hmm. concert, it's the two hemispheres of our brain. It's left and right hemisphere. And so the fact that we've decided that we want entirely one side to win or the other side to win is so short it's so short-sighted and it's incredibly destructive because you know if conservatives it's an imperfect metaphor but if conservatives function as the brakes on movement and liberals are the gas if you stomp on the brakes you don't get anywhere and if you stomp on the gas you go off a cliff or run into a wall mm -hmm. and we're just eroding the middle ground and the thing that most defines america in so many ways is common decency and common sense. And if we're going to erode that or let moneyed interests continue to erode that, we're just throwing away in some ways the most unlikely and spectacular capacity for us to have freedom and rights and care mm -hmm. and to integrate people from all cultures into this country in a way that's 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 spectacular. We have the most integrated communities whether Jewish, Muslim, black, green brown america is the is the best version of how we make that work and so far yeah yeah it's a I, yeah i think i agree with everything single thing you said with one comma which is uh, we we see these groups whatever it is call it the the hispanic group or the african-american group or whatever and yes i agree there is a there is a a normal distribution bell curve of of all types within those groups except for there are certain um issues that are more predominant to their group than another group you know immigration for instance for hispanics so it's very easy to 
to create a marketing campaign around the issue to when you say immigration to Hispanics, what do you mean? Um, specifically coming up from you know Venezuela or Mexico or whatever coming coming up in the United but what, States. Predominant for American Hispanics? Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. D to be clear, yeah, I'm only talking about American but politics. But how do you think American Hispanics feel about immigration? Depends on whether they're inside the country or out of the country. Right. How about inside the country? <laughs> inside, typically not so much. They do they do not like it. But it's still an issue that it affects them differently than it affects, let's say, you know, white Americans or whatever. So it's it's a, you have to target them separately. And I've actually talked with analysts who do this type of targeting. And they're like, you, you know, in certain places in border towns, they're like, yeah, yeah. you and cannot. Texas is different than you cannot yeah. talk about immigration positively. You always have to talk about it negatively. Um, but they don't really care as much about the family there. That's not the core issue outside of border towns. Talk more about the family that, you know, keeping the family right. together. That gets very important. It, and so these it's like groups within groups. And that's how they end up having to market and target these people. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm just saying that would be it's my just, one. I mean, the other thing is that's comma. really important is we tend to view these groups as a monolith, right? Like, but, you know, Texas Hispanics are different from California Hispanic. Like it's. Mm -hmm. There were these sort of rich communities with all this variance. You're seeing it now with Jews, with this upsurge in anti-Semitism, right? Mm -hmm. Where, based on what's happening in in uh, Israel and Gaza, right? There's this wave of anti-Semitism, and Jews are sort of all over the place. There's a, and so we tend to sort of oversimplify that. But you're right that a lot of immigrants in America um, are not a fan of having open borders because they came to America because they're fleeing a sort of chaos that's there even if they have an understanding that that some of the best immigrants resources and people who we get are from central and south america mm -hmm. like that's a great uh immigrant community and the thing that's always funny to me is in a lot of ways they're also the lifeblood to conservatism mm -hmm. right they're pro-family they're like if you want a cure for your excessively woke aggravating you know child granddaughter in college, have them live with a first generation Hispanic, right? Who's working through college, lives in a multi-generational family. I mean, it's amazing. My, my first generation for sure. Yeah. That's right, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's very interesting to me how we tend to polarize these topics as opposed to understanding, but you know, do we want to ensure, is it is it unreasonable to ensure that we have checks around security and who's coming in? Of course it's not, right. anybody thinks that. Do we make it off limits for anybody to be able to, to state that? Well, if you want to make that off limits, if the only choice is unmitigated open borders or else Trump, you know, uh, over labeling everybody as, you know, sort of rapists and murderers or that framework, um, there's no there's no middle ground on it. Mm -hmm. And basically everybody has a common sense opinion that's of middle ground. Eighty percent of Americans agree on almost everything. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, one one more quick thing before I, I, I do want to talk about the uh, October 7th stuff, because I think that's super interesting. I'd love to get your take on it. But before we do that, um, still talking about the election here for a second. When I was looking through the results of, you know, the memes that were coming out of this, you know, there, there were so many memes uh, related to the her report specifically and the aftermath of it. Um, there's a lot of talk about the 25th amendment. Um, you know, he's just not fit and, and using it more on the democratic side as a strategy. It's like, okay, we want to, and 
he's not a great candidate. We all agree he's not a great candidate, but having him leave, having him lose is not a great option either. So um, why don't we, you know, repeal him? Kamal is temporarily the president, whatever, doesn't really matter. Um, she's not going to be the president coming up. Uh, we'll get the right candidate in there and we'll put all of our chips behind that person. Is that something you think is going to happen or you think they're going to stick with Biden? No, I think that Biden, look, he's the, he's the president, he's the democratically elected president of the United States. He's not, I, I think that, I think that the, the best outcome, like the best outcome for, for, Trump. I remember this. This came up when everybody. I thought the best outcome for Trump was for him to lose the election in 2020, to have a democratically decided outcome. With Biden, I think it's that he determines that it's in his interest and in interest of the company to step aside and to figure out who the next generation of Democratic leaders should be. There's wonderful candidates. I mean, Dean Phillips is wonderful, despite the fact that he's been decried and demeaned. He's the only person who is willing to state the obvious he's dignified he's very centrist he's extraordinary across the aisle uh gretchen whitmer is amazing mark kelly is an incredible candidate he's an astronaut he's a war hero there's 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 wonderful people and you know another notion that i've had is it's like if donald trump in fact represents the existential threat that the democrats are saying that he does and i think he represents an immense threat to American stability here and in the world. I have, I would have concerns about a second term of his for sure that I believe are valid. Well, then why wouldn't we put up a ticket that is the strongest ticket in the face of it? Just like Republicans should be asking the same thing. Um, and, you know, my Republican part of my brain would say, why wouldn't we put up a ticket if it's, you know, that's the strongest version of what most Americans want and the way it's going to hold the country together? Mm. People don't want this matchup. No. You know, it's being it's being kind of coerced <laughs> on us. But no, I don't think that Biden should be removed from office. I think Biden, you know, should be in a lot of ways the first term president that was, you know, uh, implicitly although, indicated that he would be. Although I will say the Republican pollings, I mean, he's consistently way above 80 percent on the republican you know of republican voters trump yeah which is hot that's very high here let me let's and, do and a it's counterpoint still, it's still in primary season two yeah. so that so once you get rid of nikki haley because she's not there's no way she's he's like 54 percent ahead right now uh of her or no 54 points ahead of hers <laughs> it's crazy um and then uh so once he recovers that i mean he's gonna have near 100 percent very so, close so here's let's do another thought experiment which again i'm, which not, I'm not sure is a great thing by the way yeah so, <laughs> I mean, so again i'm I'm not uh, i'm not staggeringly confident in this and i could be proven wrong i mean trump is a very uh powerful force he's a very powerful candidate a fraction of the Republican voters have voted by now. The primaries are very skewed. It's like with Biden. Sure. Yeah. Nobody yet is really looked at Biden as a, I'm sorry, has really looked at Trump as a legitimate candidate as the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. People haven't explored that in full yet. Uh, again, now with his age, he hasn't been exposed to the Klieg lights of saying, what are the real policies? Is he really going to have like a sort of, uh, 
red state army that goes into blue states and deports people? Is he really going to encourage Russia to invade NATO countries that don't pay their due? And people say, don't take Trump, um, you know, literally take him seriously. You know, I have another uh, statement I've said about Trump, which is Trump lies all the time, but he's fundamentally honest. Like, you know where he is what he is feeling emotionally he will convey. I think it was a huge advantage over Hillary Clinton because Hillary would be like very composed and pointing her way through an argument with a spreadsheet about women who she's not gonna engage with, who have claims against Trump, but acting sort of beatifically presidential. And Trump was blustery and frustrated. And there's an authenticity in that that's mm -hmm. important. Yeah, there is. But, um, but with Trump, I think he hasn't been considered in full as a, as literally this is this is who he's going to be this is who he's going to have we're not going to have the same tempering forces that we had on him last time i think maga has struggled if you look at the record in the house there's been an enormous amount of chaos there's been a lot of difficulty in putting forth their agenda whatsoever they say it themselves chip roy has stated that they're moving through speakers they it, it, it's not functional in a way that even Republicans might want things to be functional. And someone like Nikki Haley would draw, a, I think, a ton of votes across the aisle. Like, so Nikki Haley versus Biden, I think, wins in a landslide, if that is in fact what the matchup is. Um, and so with Trump, it's like, he's certainly a force. He's certainly somebody who, uh, you know, it's the, 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 the ground beneath the cliff is littered with corpses of people who ruled him out early. Sure. I'm not doing that, but I'm also saying that he hasn't yet been thrust forth under that to say, who are your advisors? How are you engaging in the world? What's all the policy? Are we really having none of the, he didn't really do that in his last uh, election where he won either though. He just kind of China, 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 you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, to, but to be fair, he played an important function. So we can either look at him. I mean, one of the things I've been very interested in is there's a detachment of, and these terms are imprecise, the secular world from the symbolic world. And I'm holding in the symbolic world, religious and also mythological thinking. In a secular world, Trump makes no sense, right? Those are all the arguments to say, what? Evangelicals? He's had all these affairs. What? Republicans? He likes Russia. Symbolically, Trump played a very important role in, in the subconscious of America. And that was that he, he moved like a wrecking ball of truth through crushing all the institutions whose, the pillars of which were corrupt. They were corrupt enough that they were ready to be shoved over with a heave, like, like with a blow. And in a way he was able to do so because he was stating things that were true, whether he was choosing to, um, massively exaggerate them, uh, lie about his willingness to address them. But like immigration is an issue, like things that he raised were issues with Americans. Mm -hmm. And in a way, he was this terrible instrument of truth that embodied so much of the corruption unapologetically and brashly that people could at least look at it and go, hey, at least he's saying what he's doing, man. Mm -hmm. At least we're not being told, oh, it's another Bush. It's another Clinton. And the statistic that I that, that I think we constantly have to return to is um, since Reagan, 50 trillion. And this is this this data is four years old now. So it's much more than this. Fifty trillion dollars with a T has moved from the bottom 90 percent of Americans to the top one percent. And that is not through free market capitalism. So anyone who's a libertarian, this is 
Some of it is, some of this is globalization. An enormous amount of that is regulatory capture, is codified corruption, is the rise of a lobbyist and, class. And, ta and taxes. That is stunning. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we've seen this massive movement that's up. And when Trump was first on the scene, people were like, look, I don't know what it is. It's not going to be another Clinton or Bush or Romney. Like this is Alyssa Slotkin tells a story where she was with uh, somebody who was working on an auto assembly line. Um, she's in Michigan. And he said, look, my whole life the last 20, 30 years is a straight line going down financially. I work harder and harder to make less and less. I consider myself a stage four cancer victim and Trump is my experimental chemo. Mm -hmm. And so for Trump to come in and sort of unapologetically and brashly exemplify the 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 corruptions on the one hand and the speaking of just a sort of bold and brazen id-like proclamation of calling out the bullshit of elitism and the way that the elites have had become in a lot of and elites is an imperfect term so i'm using it in the sense that republicans use it mm -hmm. not just republicans but you understand what i'm saying yes. um I, i'm not saying that um and he was able to do that and people wanted someone to come along and just put their thumb in the eye of america and tear everything down and the amount of like narcissism and force and power that you need to do to be able to do that and exemplify that. Um, one of my friends, um, Billy Ray has a line, somebody quoted to him that they said, um, Trump can't take a punch, but he can take a beating. <laughs> and so the person who you want to say, look enough, tear it apart is by definition, not the person that you want to come put it, together in a way that's going to make sense. Mm -hmm. So he's, in a lot of ways, he laid bare horrible truths, right, in about the corruption and capture of the culture, about um, a lot of the, in some ways, I think he embodied a lot of ugly instincts um, in the American psyche in certain ways. He spoke some truths uh, that people on the other side didn't want to acknowledge. But a lot of this was expressed like toxins to the surface. Mm -hmm. Okay, do we want to just baste in those and swim in those and have a, 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 a winner-takes-all game with him again? Like, by definition, the destroyer is not the rebuilder. And if we want to continue to compete in a world with strong men leaders like Putin and Xi, who are not concerned about the next democratic election or concerned about the next negative piece from the media that's going to take them down um we better get our act together and we better be solidified and it's not going to go well if all of blue america or all of red america wins and believes in some ways that they solely are on the right side of america and we're going to subjugate 50 percent of americans we're in a marriage conservatives and liberals, high trade openness and low trade openness, high trade conscientiousness and low trade conscientiousness. And that marriage is the greatest source of strength and stability that we have as a country. Mm -hmm. If we want to let that go, if we want to just say, I mean, I think that I think Trump would be incredibly divisive and I don't think that we would be able to function and compete effectively on the world stage, I think it would be highly problematic. And I think people are I think that what we need more than anything are the precise types of voices that we are excising willfully from the conversation. And those are voices for moderation, <clears throat> civil argument, uh, negotiation, and compromise. 
I think I don't know if you know this or not, but um, one of the some of the people I know who were in the in the room early days when Trump was before he was uh, president, they're like, yeah, he didn't actually intend to win or want to win. No, no. He, he, he wanted a tax holiday. He was running just basically to, you know, repatriate just, you know, a, several billion of his personal dollars. Um, and for the brand. Yeah, 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 sure. He's a showman. He's yeah. a brilliant showman. And and he didn't expect to win. And, and they kind of got rid of a couple people. And then it was Kellyanne Conway with the help of Cambridge Analytica and a handful of people who actually believed that he could win. And, you know, they're looking at the numbers and he, you know, he, and it, and it kind of shows at the very last minute when he was elected, he had this tiny kind of crappy little ballroom, like, you know, maybe a couple hundred people in there. <laughs> it was like poorly lit and like, like one camera in the room, like just, just bad. Like, I mean, it's like very low production quality for a presidential candidate because I think he honestly just didn't believe it was going to happen. He's like, eh, you know, mm. who cares? Where Hillary, if you look at hers, is this massive like convention center with this big glass. I don't know where it was, probably the Gaylord or something. I don't know where it was. This beautiful place, and it was this big symbolic thing where they're going to be shattering the glass the ceiling and blah blah blah, and like, and she she wouldn't even come out on stage, like she wouldn't even like like have her big like thank you so much for coming, you know it was a good we tough campaign or whatever. I think that speaks a lot to like, it it's, makes sense why he was unprepared because he wasn't expecting to win. That's right. He, he didn't have his cabinet all locked in and you know what I mean? Like I've been I've been thinking about this a lot and one of the things um I think was exemplified like let's just take the 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 case study of the college admissions scandal, hmm. right? Where they were bribing to get their kids into different schools. Mm -hmm. And it's relevant. Give me a minute sure. to circle back to this, but I think part of what's happened is that our avatars of meaning have completely floated away from reality in a certain way. And part of why the college admission scandal was a huge international news event, which is really weird because it's like a couple rich people, Hollywoody people bribed. And I mean, it was gross and it should have certainly gotten press, but it was it was met with a sort of vehemence and I think justified fury. And I think the part of it is, you know, I think back to um, my father went to a, a school in Boston called Roxbury Latin, and it was one of the original look to the left of you, look to the right of you, one of you won't be here next year. I think they started mm -hmm. with 45 kids and graduated 23 and 19 went to Harvard and the rest went to Yale, except one went to Dartmouth or something. Just but they, <laughs> It's Latin, it's Greek, it's all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And what should happen if you bribe a school to get your kid in and say they were on the crew team or the water polo team or their test scores were better. What should happen if that student goes to Yale or UCLA, or, or I don't know if UCLA was involved, so goes to Yale, goes to Stanford, is that they should wash out immediately because they're not Yale or Stanford material. Right. They didn't have the merit to do it. And the fact that they could just go through graduate from USC, graduate from Yale, get accepted, nobody would know the difference. Everybody knew essentially that it's bullshit, that if you can get in and rig and play the game the right way and you get in, you won't be um, exposed to really um, restrictive and diligent academia. You won't be held up to do the things that you claim that you're worth doing. And it was so apparent. I mean, Everybody knew that, mm -hmm. that in a way that our schools had become these sort of coddling centers for, you know, continued enhancement 
of children off these sort of vanity degrees. And we've seen that blown wide open in the wake of October 7th. So the, gross. The, the, the testimony that happened. In a way, I think part of what happened with Trump, what you're describing was we've also seen like, well, what's the notion that that if we turn on a TV that the that the cable news anchor is going to tell us the truth, the this sort of objective truth? What are the odds that a politician is going to be working on behalf of their constituents? Right. There's all these places that we should have some expectation that there's an alliance of avatar with what it is they're supposed to be representing. And that floating away, whether into an ivory tower, whether into a captured, you know, a partisan landscape, whether into a corporation that sole aim isn't the health and thriving of the American people or our kids or a long term economic plan or the robustness of their workers so that they can come up and support families and have a healthy structure, but sheer kind of bottom line hitting quarterly reports all of these these groups have just floated away into and what we're seeing i think is a massive recorrection to say oh the president of harvard there's a certain standard that we might want to have for that oh, a nice. student who gets into <laughs> yale there's a standard that we might want for that same with politicians and people have had it and so we we're looking at this denigration of our institution and subject matter experts and it's awful because at some point we do have to decide to trust again, we do have to decide to quit tearing everything to shreds. Um, but you know, I've been thinking about this a lot in the wake of the Robert Hur report, mm -hmm. and I knew Robert at as an undergraduate. We were friends. We studied English together. But you know, he's the like the left is furious with him, and the right is furious with him, and anybody who emerges is just sort of torn to pieces. And on the one hand, it's like, okay, you're special counsel. It's a big report. Fair enough. You got to stand in the fire. By the other hand, it's like, would we even know competent competence if it came to express itself, right. even handed competence? Um, and believe me, if you take a 388 page report and put the pressure and fury of the world to it, are there going to be cracks? Can the cracks then be spun into like completely devolving? the whole story of this report into something of sheer screaming partisanship. Either it's a two-tier justice system and he's an operative of the deep state who is, you know, letting Biden off the hook while Trump on the self-same charges is, you know, is still being hounded. Um, or is he sneaking in his partisan barbs, you know, in order to depose and, you know, in James Comey like wrecking ball fashion, mm -hmm. remove the president of the United States, you know, or can we stand to hear truths? Can we stand to hear truths, even if they're imperfect, as everything is rendered by people who are imperfect as we all are, which oh, is sure. to say, maybe the two cases really are different. It sure seems that way to me, like Trump's motivation and intention in the scope of the documents seems and his, his engagement with the investigation seems different. OK, also. One of the things that a special counsel or any prosecutor would assess is the viability of the defendant, right? As they are, as they would be put forth and subjected to a trial. Are they well intentioned? Are they not? Are they? Is it something that would would stand up? One among many, 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 many other factors. Sure. And there are many, many other factors in that. Mm -hmm. So, so maybe. And look, I'm not. A, I'm certainly not a uh, a legal expert. But you know, maybe we 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 get these things sometimes that don't fit into narrative. And it's like maybe that's an approximation, not of someone who's a captured ideologue, but maybe that's an approximation of um, 
somebody trying to do a job that's competent, which means that nobody gets what we like. And there's truths on both sides that we respectively don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, Democrats don't want to hear that Biden's too old. Republicans don't want to hear that there are aspects of Trump's behavior on this that are thuggish and more. Yep. On, on, the, on the deep state side, I mean, generally speaking, I do think there is some truth to this because there is a lot of back end politics that happened and i mean i've i've seen it personally to some degree um not been involved but seen it um and when you see things like removing trump from the uh from the ballot in colorado for instance regardless of whether you think that's legal or not and that i think that will be determined very quickly by the supreme court it doesn't look good. You know what I mean? If you're trying to make a case for there isn't a deep state and then you're like, we're just not going to allow someone to run. It's like, um, so, so, so it's a it question. Just, it doesn't, it, the optics aren't great. So here's a, it's a question of terms, right? Or is it that a state court came to a ruling that seems pretty clearly not like it's going to hold water? I mean, you can't, he hasn't been convicted of the charges, right? So, um, is it a deep state if it's going to I think it will likely I'm not, I'm not saying this I think it'll likely state. go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will likely overturn it and say no you can't remove him from a ballot you know um, because no one's ruled on it yet in a court of law mm -hmm. and so what you have is overly exuberant um, um, intrusion of a partisan skew into political proceedings which is equivalent for Republicans yeah, you know the notion that there's a that everybody who's involved with the government, this is from the Republican perspective, sure, sure. aside from avowed Trump loyalists who are claiming that the election was stolen, represents a deep state is preposterous. But, yeah, I'm not, and that's I'm not saying this is valid. I'm saying the optics are of terrible. Course, the, optics are, <laughs> the optics are terrible. And, and but similar, the optics are terrible. What I would say is that the optics are terrible in equivalent partisan fashion with things that Republicans do. Oh, no, no, no. And I, so agree, you know, agreed. it's. Yeah, I mean, I think Colorado, I, the, I think, the other I think one, it will rightly be thrown out by the Supreme Court. The other one that this was, I think, last election, maybe, uh, was with Bernie Sanders and what was going on with DNC. Like, like, it seems like there could have been a, a path to handle removing Bernie Sanders if he's the of the one you want to get rid of in favor of uh, Biden without doing anything weird like not letting certain votes get counted and stuff and like I, these, these are these are the kinds of optics where the average person looking at it goes that's gross yes and maybe there maybe there's a good reason and whatever blah 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 blah. but it's just gross absolutely and so so here's a here, you know and this is one of the part problems with the two-party system mm -hmm. because democrats go well this is our party if you want you go run on your own and it's like okay well what's the cost of getting on a ballot it's like 250,000 per state. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways that the corruption in two-party systems are just codified that the price of entry is nearly insurmountable to people to try to enter a race in a way that's Well, RFK is going to try. He's going to try. But to your point, yeah, I mean, Democrats are going to Democrat. Republicans are going to Republican. And, you know, it's no different than, well, I should say it's no different. Everything's different. But, you know, Trump having, you know, um, what is it, Rana? Romney change her name and now she's being ousted. I mean, they're certainly reconstituting the entire Republican apparatus and the Democrats are doing the same. And that's the problem <laughs> with with a 
with this two-party system. I agree that the optics are terrible. And frankly, you know, I think a lot of the policy that they've taken to Dean Phillips, who also Dean urged people, uh, you know, he was urging Pritzker to run or Gretchen Whitmer to run. Um, I've known Dean a long time. I was talking to him early days. He was like, I'm not the, you know, biggest household name in the party, but let's have this discussion. His position was Biden has served amazingly well. He's supposed to be a transitional kind of president. He's done a remarkable job. This is Dean's position. And it's time now clearly to pass the torch and to figure out people who can work across the aisle and sort of, but, you know, basically he's having to devote a ton of treasure and time and resources to, you know, fighting legal challenges. And, you know, it's not, it's not debating on the merits. Um, and that's how politics are played. It's a very sharp elbowed game. Um, and that and that's the part that I think so like if I were to say the Democrats could clean up their house, like there's just a couple of things that and I think their house could be relatively from the from the centrist perspective anyway. You like if you just clean up these two or three things, like let whoever's gonna run run. Like it just don't 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 meddle with that. Like <laughs> win on the merits, win on the, the case, you know, if 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 one of your candidates is running and they're, and they're good, let them run. Like don't don't arbitrarily Do you think cut them off less the knees for Democrats to clean up than Republicans. I think so. Actually, I think there are less things, but I think I do too. For but some... I do think that it takes. I do think I've had an evolution of my thinking on this, and mm -hmm. part of it is is the fact that they won't contend with certain issues, clarify where they draw a line on certain issues, mm -hmm. and clean up certain issues, given the stakes is an immense moral failing. I agree. Because the stakes are huge. And so on the one hand, I look at them to go, wow, you know, if there's a cabinet with a presidency, you know, if we have Dean Phillips and, and Mark Kelly and Alyssa Slotkin and Abby Spanberger, there's this amazing constellation of Democrats who were moderate, centrist, can deal across the aisle, can win in Trump districts, who have respect for, it's not just they can win, respect for Trump, uh, voters can understand the perspective and talk to it. Um, but the party as a whole won't differentiate and draw a line around certain things that cost them based on a need to hold on to power and are using that in certain regards manipulatively to shrink the Overton window on what can possibly be discussed without you being labeled a Trump supporter, without you being thrust into the wilderness without any support. Right. You're a fascist, you're a racist, you're transphobic, you're right, a, a Trump supporter, you're hastening the end of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it's unforgivable morally that we, we should be able to, we should be, and the American people, I think, are tough enough and strong enough to want to be exposed to issues as, as they know uh, truthfully exist. I... I hope you're right. I'm not sure you're right about that one. <laughs> I think a lot of people, I have a lot of conversations with all kinds, right? And quite often I'll have a conversation and people are just like, I don't want to know this. Like, I'll, I, I'm like, what do you mean you don't want to know it? Like, what about it is offensive to you? Like, it is just a fact that I'm saying, mm. you know what I mean? And they're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That I, I, yeah. They're very happy in their little world. And what I'm saying is absolutely blowing it up. And when I talk to people, often it's about security, but it, oftentimes it's about their security and like how yeah. it affects them. And all of a sudden, like they just, there's no safety net. Like they really are in the real world for the first time and it's terrifying to them and they want to get right back to that safety net. There's a line which uh, I will slightly misquote um, from 
the prophet where he says, your pain is the shell of your understanding breaking. Hmm. So I think we're talking a little bit differently about what that is. It's a very fair point. And part of what we're seeing is people holding their breath and covering their ears. It's it's just too threatening. It's too threatening to look in the mirror and go, like if you're looking at Trump- On both sides, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you're looking at Trump and, and, and some of the horrors that an ascendant, the, let's say the worst impulses of Trump, not the MAGA voters, but of that what he represents is, yeah. is coming and you're seeing that. It's very hard to look in the mirror at what's over your shoulder and vice versa for people who are looking at what they see as this sort of regressive Marxist policies that are to be able to look and go, but what are we justifying, right? Because the more I see your big bullies, the more I'm going to get my big bullies. Mm -hmm. They can enter the game, right? Who do we gather whose tactics we don't really like, but we need a powerful... Oh, tank I'm, and battalion I'm on the field. Terrible things coming out of some of my friends. Like they, they, a lot of these people are fully expecting to go to war over this. Mm -hmm. Like not like figuratively. She, she, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and so what I would say is, when you're talking about people who don't want to hear it, is one thing. What I'm talking about is when I'm saying that the American people are tougher or whatever. I don't mean that in the in the trite way that people, you know, the American people will understand the truth of spin, spin, spin. Mm. What I mean is. If you talk to people who are working, if you go into communities where people are getting by, right? They're living paycheck to paycheck, their heads down, they're going to, to church or temple or mosque, they're raising their kids, they're taking care of their parents, they're trying to make ends meet, they're budgeting. They all are willing to have this conversation. You know, yeah. it's like part of what we're talking to is there's a lot of a lot of people only are talking to a sort of educated, which I put in air quotes now, um, you know, sort of crust of people who have access to news. The average Obama Trump voter, the true swing voter, um, this is a quotation again from my friend and colleague Billy Ray, um, commutes two and a half hours a day to work, I think works three jobs and thinks about politics four minutes a week. So when you're talking about the people who are you know, holding their breath and plugging their ears, which happens a lot. People just can't. It's amazing that that the the disintegration of critical faculties that we have among people who we think that we could just engage with. I mean, that used to be freshman year rhetoric would Not be right. make the argument for Trump as a better president. Now mm -hmm. make the argument for Biden as a better president. Mm -hmm. That should be an exercise that we all do and that we all embody. Even if we return to our original position, then having steel mandate with greater awareness of the vulnerabilities and flaws in our position and more more strong to do it and more able to engage otherwise. But when you go and talk to the people who I'm talking about, they don't have time for all this nonsense. They're okay. like, what? Like, okay, if 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 one kid in however many is identifies in some way, that's fine. I don't want the government, like my kids are my kids and this is this and the border, great. Immigrants, I'm from immigrants as everyone is great immigrants in the community. Let's make sure it's safe. They're key to the economy. Abortion, it's let's not talk about it like it's a, you know, like it's nothing, like it's like any other procedure. It's there's 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 a lot in it that has deep emotional, psychological for a lot of people, spiritual ramifications. It should be avoided at almost all costs. No one wants your daughter to have an abortion. Let's talk about it in real terms, but also if somebody, if, if your 12 year old niece is, God forbid, 
raped and is desperate not to have a pregnancy, what are we going to do with her for nine months? Like strap her to a gurney and, and put tubes in her arm, like in the most free nation in the world, right? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do if someone has an ectopic pregnancy and they're going to die and the hospital's, you know, legal department hasn't caught up to how it should be handled that we're having women like this isn't figured out at all. But so let's let's figure it out. Let's talk about it. People are willing to talk about a lot more than if you if you rise, rise up or descend down, depending on which way you view it to people who are nominally educated in the current landscape of ideas, I don't think they're functioning at a level that they're contending with reality, to be frank. Mm. The more time that we're on the news and that we're on social media is, I don't think you can do all that and remain sane and hold center. <laughs> Good luck. Unless you're watching RT, of course. Uh, <laughs> that is a joke. You know, if, if 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 people crossed the border into San Diego from Mexico and killed fifty thousand San Diegans in this manner, which is the equivalent, um, there'd be a necessity for an incredibly intense response and different level of security and stability. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the United States does not. I mean, we we basically in, invaded two or three countries when when nine eleven happened. <laughs> it's uh, we don't we don't uh, we don't play that game very well. Um, well, we're getting kind of low on time, so it's probably worth talking about your book now. But in context, um, you have a pretty diverse readership as well. And so there, there's a lot of things about your book that um, books, I should say, but <clears throat> this book in particular that uh, kind of sang to me from different perspectives. Like I could see where you were going like this you know this big old mega corporation that's bad but there's also like you know some effectively a hillbilly on the ground that's you know upset that you know everything's about you know gay rights and why can't he make a buck i mean it's like this very large you know disparity between these groups and um so first of all like are you doing that intentionally are you trying to pull in like the 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 lowest you know homeless all truly the lowest of the homeless all the way to these sort of you know oligarchs or whatever american oligarchs for lack of a better word uh, is that an intentional plot device or is that just sort of necessity of of where you're trying to go with the plot mm. well as as has been oft remarked you know the bad guy never thinks he's the bad guy mm -hmm. And so for me, trying to write authentic characters means I don't ever want a straw man. You know, I don't ever want a clueless hillbilly, a mouthless, a mouth breathing reprobate. Um, and, you know, in certain regards, there's a hundred ways we do it. I don't also want to represent um, big business. Technology and advancement is all evil, right? And all um, sort of horrific and people driven merely by venality. Everything's complicated. We're all complicated. You know, it's, uh, you know, another guiding premise in my life goes back to, and again, I'm going to paraphrase poorly, but Solzhenitsyn, you know, who is mm -hmm. dying of cancer in a gulag, uh, the least, one of the least empowered human beings on the planet, right? And basically he determined to set his own soul in order and memorize in some ways or, or, or hid the Gulag Archipelago and came out and that in combination with the geopolitical forces, but it provided the moral death blow in some ways to unequivocally, you know, 
shatter the notion of the Soviet Union or any moral bearing that it had. He has that observation where he says that he realized the line between good and evil runs not through nations or peoples, but through the heart of every human being. And so whenever I'm writing somebody, it doesn't matter if they're where they're from, what their job is, what their political orientation is. I'm trying to write them from a position that's valid within them. Um, and that means paying attention to and bringing them forth in ways that are authentic. And so I don't have, you know, I don't choose sides in fiction. I try and write people where they are. And I think in some ways I have a great readership. I have a great community of readers. I'm very proud of that. You know, I, half my book tours in red states or blue states, I have readers of all stripes come to me um, and it's great. And I think part of writing fiction that's, that is real and is authentic means that it can't just be tilted into one propagandistic line or another. I want to make people think, I want to make people challenge their assumptions. Um, so, hmm. yeah. Yeah. When I read it, um, there, there's something kind of interesting about Evan smoke. He's, a he's a bit of a snob in a interesting way. You know, he has certain, um, kind of highfalutin things he likes, like, you know, very fine vodka. And, you know, he's got certain tastes. Um, <clears throat> and I think, I think by having the sort of the richness of that, I, like, unfortunately, I saw myself quite a bit in the character, um, <laughs> good or bad. <laughs> um, but uh, I never got the impression he was. Um, he's a thin veneer he's a pretty princess you know put him up mm. you know he's a he's a character like he's not a gi joe you know what i mean it's like paper thin persona you know it's like a there's something like like weird and delicate about being ocd you know like where anything can push his buttons at any time all you have to do is drop one crumb and you've you've sort of wrecked his day you know um mm. and that that makes uh that makes for a really interesting deep character flaw and he's got others right <laughs> he's got plenty he's got plenty but but that's an example of one where you don't have to push very hard to push his buttons they're like right there right on the surface and so there's so many people like that you know like, <clears throat> not to get too into this but i was in a conversation just a couple of weeks ago and it was about trump but not it was not a it was not a contentious conversation actually it was like he was telling me something trump had said i'm like oh i didn't know that and i was looking it up and he was kind of he was kind of uh trying to convince me of a thing and and i was like okay but you know here's the counterpoint not to say i actually disagree with what you're saying in fact it looks like it's all true but here's the counterpoint just if you want to know it and he starts yelling at me like i mean not like sort of you know mm. conversationally raising his voice i mean yelling yelling at the top of his lungs and now that I know that, that is such an easy button to push. You know what I mean? Not that I would intentionally push him, but mm. like when you see those kinds of, you know, Fabergé egg, it's it's just so easy to crack this persona open, and they're leaving that crumb there. You know, they're it's like it's like like that thing will kill me if I don't deal with it. You know, mm. like got to get rid of it. I think that was really exciting to watch that mm. play out. Mm. Well. I two two things about that. Um, we talked earlier about like avatars floating away from reality. What for me I like so much about Evan is that he's educated, but he's educated in always about 
how to operate in the real world. Like he speaks different languages. He knows etiquette from different countries. It's also he doesn't get killed if he is, you know, committing an assassination in another country. Mm-hmm. And so there's two lines I think of for him. One of them is Jack Johns, his father, uh, father figure and handler, um, you know, in some ways says to him, uh, like trains him to be a blue collar Renaissance man. Right. There's another line that I quote, which is from, um, the OSS that predated the CIA where mm-hmm. they said their ideal candidate was a PhD who could win a bar fight. It's like, you don't get to just occupy or live in the world of your mind, everything. And you don't get to be snobby about knowledge that you have if it's not applicable to things. Right. And so he's very grounded all the time because he learned all these things in a way that's life or death or has a real appreciation of different kinds of thinking mm-hmm. based on actually using them as tools in the world as opposed to just sort of rarefied ivory tower nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'll tell you uh, that I was thinking about a little bit with your friend. So yeah, Evan is OCD, though operationally he can turn that off, right? So when he's in the commission of a mission, he can throw a switch, but in his own space where he is resting and healing, he needs, he returns from the filth and dirt of the world into a very uh, <laughs> controlled state, right? Mm-hmm. And that state of perfection doesn't leave a lot of room for intimacy in the mess of other people and their human emotions. Sticky fingers. <laughs> but I was thinking a lot about your friend, your, your Fabergé egg of a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a conversation one time with a, a political, quite prominent political leader in the Republican Party, um, part of the Freedom Caucus. And he said something to me that was so interesting. He said, you know, Democrats with Trump, he's the easiest guy in the world to figure out. Like you just show him respect, basically, um, and he'll kind of give you whatever it is that you want. He said, you guys pushed him all the way over, you guys, for whatever reason, in this conversation, Mm -hmm. I was you guys. Um, But Democrats pushed him all the way to us. We got the Supreme Court. We got everything that we wanted. He was way more liberal than where he wound up. Oh, because yeah. Because he just drove him New, that way. He was a New York Democrat. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, <laughs> there's three things Trump wanted to be more than anything else, I think. You know, one was a Hollywood star and Hollywood shunned him. Mm-hmm. One was a member of New York society and New York society shunned him. And one was like a real billionaire and the billionaires made a big point of shunning him. And it was very interesting. It raised this sort of moral moral question in my mind, which is, let's say that like Democrats inability to play real politic, right? Which means from their perspective, the loss of the Supreme Court for a generation, right? Or whatever it is, or the policies that they didn't get through. Their inability to to play and deal and operate in the world as it really existed with a commander in chief to try to negotiate or do other things, you know, it, it's a sort of um, outcropping of this notion of deplatforming. It's sort of like, well, we kind of deplatformed Donald Trump into becoming the most important and powerful <laughs> human being on the planet, <laughs> right? Maybe that's not something we try repeatedly elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very tricky because something not- Something similar happened with Jordan Peterson. Yes, in spades, mm-hmm. in spades. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that there's sort of two primary templates that that Americans tend to be frozen in. And one of them is Chamberlain getting off the plane, waving the piece of paper, right? Do you appease Hitler, right? It's Hitler. You don't appease him, no matter what at all costs, right? And the other thing from a foreign relations engagement then is Vietnam. Like, do you get overly involved that you're sucked into mission creep indefinitely? Um, 
Those are two extremes. They're not every circumstance. And in a way, if you approach every circumstance as opposed to being, I'm not gonna be Chamberlain waving the piece of paper in any way, I'm not gonna get sucked into any conflict in any way on the other hand, it removes like the myriad choices that are in the middle. Like mm -hmm. there are times, of course, there's times that you shun somebody absolutely when the power and necessity is there. There are times when you fight, there's times that you go to war, there's times that you use every tool at your disposal to do it. That is a beginning starting point across the boards. Like you're mentioning with Jordan Peterson, like the fact that Jordan Peterson, Elon Musk and Joe Rogan are considered alt-right is is so laughable it's beyond preposterous it's mm -hmm. like or is it that you know people with big brash daring thinking and um you know tendencies that are that are not neatly defined and constrained are not welcome like do we not want to have that be part of a culture and society that we're engaging with they should be excised and removed from the culture much like jk rowling just more hamas that's all we need mm. <laughs> oh my gosh um yeah I, I going back to evan for a second there's something that's really nice about the the inner dialogue you get to hear from him you know he's he's like he's angry about about I mean, this book should have been uh, titled um, The Case of the Missing Dog, firstly. <laughs> but you get to hear the uh, the inner dialogue, like the, these goddamn papers, you know, I'll take your stupid flyers, you know, like, um, I mean, he's not outwardly he's pleasant and like, of course, you know, I'll help you or whatever. But inwards, he's like, this is like totally beneath me. I'm, you know, and I think if you're trying to extrapolate out to, to like a bigger, broader scenario, I think there are a lot of people who are like, this is all beneath me. I don't, I just don't, I don't feel you like they have this inner monologue. They're like, I just don't, I think the American public, not entirely for obvious reasons, uh, but largely are fairly classy people. Uh, they do believe in, you know, individualism. They do believe in, you know, promoting other people and getting, you know, congratulating them when they do a good job and sort of all that classy stuff that you'd expect. You know what I mean? Um, but some, something's been happening lately. And I don't yeah. know. I don't we know. Get, we're starting to get tall poppy syndrome yeah. that used to be in Australia or England where, if so, you know, if Martin Amos gets too big for his britches, right, you got to tear him down. Right. And we didn't used to have this. We used to have much more of a celebration of accomplishment. And I mean, I've been laughing so much, you know, we're Super Bowl weekend here of this sort of <laughs> outrage and ire over Taylor Swift. It's like, it's amazing how many buttons are pushed by a kind of, you know, competent, smart, uh, talented singer, right, who might have some opinions that you disagree with. But there's a real... Um, nastiness emergent in the American in in current American culture that I don't think is is very American or part of the American spirit right we should celebrate success it should be good on you right like congratulations right do you you did it and you know help other like make sure that the path's open don't pull up the ladder behind you as you as you you know ascend to the next level of success you know but good on you we'll celebrate that 
and you know we can't we can't denigrate and kill that to which we aspire i mean there's a reason that cain and abel's the second story in the bible really it's like if you kill the thing that is good that you're supposed to aspire towards this is a point that that uh jordan peterson makes um quite astutely in his in his uh genesis lectures um you know you're you're rudderless you don't have anywhere to go so it's like okay is 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 success bad and america is a colonialist country and you know people who are successful in business or all oppressors it's like well, where are you going what what world is that mm -hmm. um we should celebrate fair success and we should celebrate different different differentiation of outcome right as much as we want equality of opportunity we want to remove the obstacles to get as many people out of the starting line as possible and by the way that's not just moral that's also just smart economic policy it's smart community policy the more people we have who get a fair shot at the starting gate the more people can succeed in varying in different differentiated ways mm -hmm. which means more taxpayers and more stable families yeah, more and innovation and a bunch of other stuff i mean we we have amazing resources mm -hmm. but we should also celebrate differentiated outcomes and people who are ahead of us in certain regards to say good on you what can i learn from you how do i how can i strive to get there as well fairly you know and to and i think the more that we denigrate that and the more additionally that we um you know through codified corruption or regulatory capture lobbyism or the things we discussed pull up the ladder and make it harder and harder and harder and untenably harder for other people to follow um the more we're just tilting towards a third world country that we're going to have to live in gated communities and it's like nobody wants all that right you know, there's so much, there's so much kind of um, middle to long-term stability. There's so much wealth to be had in establishing smart capitalism, a culture that invests in people, invests in resources, has a kind of safer, more secure world that we want our kids to grow up in. Um, and this sort of endless grouping into black or white based on dynamics is pretty, it's pretty brutal. I've noticed that a lot. People get to... It's funny you pointed that out. I've been thinking about that a lot, that there's something very un-American. Like how many people can we even agree on? It's like Tom Hanks and The Rock and Dolly Parton, <laughs> you know, who are just. Sure, we'll I agree mean, on those. <laughs> right, but I mean, you know, it's really, um, it's really troubling that we have so few people who are arbiters. And, of, I, and I bet at some point, all of them are gonna get torn down. I mean, not Dolly Parton, though. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure of it. She's definitely got, like, you know, slaves locked up somewhere, something terrible, right? You know? We'll find out, you know, 50 years from now, and she'll be off. The, no mm -hmm. one can agree on her, even. You know what I mean? We're. I'm not saying everyone has 50 slaves in their basement, but I am saying, like... I'm they're glad gonna, you clarified They're that. going to... <laughs> But it, but people will find ways to remove any well, look, cultural I mean, maybe icon. what we're learning is, you know, okay. with the culture, with these things, right? We have, with our phones, we've sort of willingly given away our freedom, right? Mm -hmm. We do have access to so much of us. I mean, FDR has, has been famously and often remarked, you know, was in a wheelchair and the press was very respectful. They didn't want to show him not empowered. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what's happening is the more that we willfully give away our um, privacy. You know, we click all those buttons every time we sign up for a new social media, a new platform, a new tax thing, a new health thing. Convenience, luxury, it can be the death of us. 
but we're giving away our privacy. And part of what's happening is if you, if we start to have unfettered access into everybody, what we see is that everybody's human and flawed, mm-hmm. right? It's nobody can sustain. If you go in, if you pick the 10 pettiest, uh, cruelest things I ever did in my life and or stupid things that I did and pulled them out and conglomerated them and issued that in a report and shot that through the internet and cut and diced it, you'd obliterate me. And anybody who says that that's not true is lying to themselves. They're just masters of self-deception. And so part of this is, is if you run for office now, everything that ever happened, every ex-boyfriend, every financial report, every time that you took a shortcut or were an asshole or were mean to somebody can get filtered through and, and trotted out. And so what we're discovering is, is it's like we're tearing everybody down to feel better about ourselves in some weird game that we feel like the more that we do it, the more puffed up we're getting in our own virtue, rather than looking at the fact that everybody's flawed. And I'll say a lot of my engagement and call it the you know political cultural landscape to try and do good, is increasingly I just am looking at people's intentions and then measuring outcomes of what they do. Mm -hmm. I don't care about anything in between. I don't care what language they use. I don't care what they've done in the past. I don't care um, if somebody's intentions are good and if what they're doing moves towards a positive outcome for people or positive outcome in the world, like we need to start to simplify a little bit more because if you look deep enough at any person, any document, any report, any piece of legislation, anyone's social media history, we can find things to obliterate everybody. So mm-hmm. why don't we just all part the kimono and admit to the fact that we're flawed and human and have traits that we're not proud of? Um, it's very much what the series is about. I mean, I start Orphan X um, not when Evan's in a foster home, not when he's recruited out in his training to be an assassin, not when he's you know, committing executions around the globe as Orphan X, not when he leaves the program and becomes the nowhere man, you know, which is where people in desperate need call him. They call one 855 nowhere and people can call that number and see who answers. Mm-hmm. But in the first mission that he takes as, a, as the nowhere man, where he has to break all 10 of his assassin's commandments when everything he thought he knew disintegrates. And there's a line I use in every book that his handler, Jack Johns, tells him when he's 12. He says, the hard part isn't turning you into a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And it would have been easier for him if he'd been trained to be just a true believer, Mm -hmm. an assassin, a black and white world. In a way, that Achilles heel that the pilot light of his humanity is kept, is protected by Jack, Mm -hmm. is the thing that leads to all his hardship, but it also leads to his process of becoming human. It's almost like I open the series and he's Pinocchio and he wants to be, he realizes that he's an archetypal hero. He's realizes in a way that he's Pinocchio, but he wants to be a real boy. Mm. And the series is the process of him trying to become a human, to try to understand the strange language of intimacy, to try and see all the ways that as much as he's got incredible competence and lethal capability, and a good amount of of courage, the ways in which he's cowardly when it comes to matters of engagement with people, ways he can't contend with the mess of human human beings who are messy and improper, the way that they hold up mirrors to us. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think that what we're in need of more than anything is a sort of moral revolution. 
you know, a, a revolution of values of sort of humility and self-reflection being elevated to a higher level. Hmm. You know, we have a lot of um, planks in our eyes, you know, and the more that we're sort of howling and screaming about the injustice and all the problems of the other side, all the problems that have led to us being uniquely victimized, all the hardships that we've encountered, it's like, well, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of responsibility that we have and that in the shouldering of that responsibility, you know, is the path towards meaning. And that's, that's an age old story. Certainly. Um, it's been remarked upon and encoded in stories well before I'm around and will be long after I'm dead. But mm -hmm. it seems to be the spine of the orphan X story that I'm telling just wrapped in what I hope is a very compelling and exciting page turning thriller series. Yeah. So uh, I think this episode will come out in about three weeks. So will this will have been out by then, right? Yes. Okay. And you are launching it tomorrow? Tonight. Tonight. Tonight is the date. Okay. Um, well, where can people find it once it's out? Is it like literally everywhere on that it's day? It's literally everywhere. You can buy it online. You can buy it in bookstores. What There's about audiobook? Yeah, There's so Audible's out. Yeah, I have a wonderful audiobook reader called Scott Breck. Okay. Who's tremendous. Uh -huh. uh, he does a wonderful job with it. All right. So. I know, I know, uh, I know somebody specifically who's very excited to listen to it. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. great. Um, I hate to stop talking to you. Um, so I think we're probably gonna have to do this again. I uh, hope you're okay with that. <laughs> I'm happy, happy to come back. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, and um, and you know, I'm okay traveling to you, but I think I think this is worth doing. And I agree. I think. Um, I think the thing that's missing is more conversation. So it, it feels a little weird to me, by the way, having conversations like this, because in some ways they're a bit contrived. Like I have a series of questions and really those questions are just trying to facilitate a conversation because normally conversations are just happening at the bar or they're happening you know, over the kitchen dinner table or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, but I appreciate these a lot because because they can be more structured and more concise and compressed and you know sometimes they go nowhere um some of the conversations i have are just kind of duds and others are just amazing and uh so i really appreciate you spending the time thank you yeah it's been a lot of it's been it's fun yeah i agree i've had a good time all right thank you brother